kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Welcome to Auntie Nanny. With me tonight is the very best producer that money can't buy, which is good because after years and years, I'm still not paying him. How are you this evening, Barry? Oh, better than I was yesterday. Yeah, your toes looked. Your, your toe didn't look like it was doing very well. Is it feeling better today at all? Well, since I wasn't in pain uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. There's no signs it's going to get infected. The swelling's gone back down. So, yeah, it'll be fine in a few days. Good. Well, I mean, at least, you know, what would be better for it to happen to than someone who knows exactly how to care for wounds? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been a first aider for... Well, I, I learned first aid about 1986. So, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't I currently right. have a Red Cross card, though, so, yeah. Okay. Not officially a first aider, but... Yeah, well, you know, I don't, uh... I learned CPR when I first got involved in retail, and I, I don't have a card to do that anymore either, but I still know it, you know? Yeah. Just because you don't have a certification doesn't mean that knowledge goes away. Well, Just... CPR is the odd one. Uh, CPR changes every six months. Yeah. They, they keep changing the amount of chest puffs and chest puffs compressions. and chest compressions. Yeah. Yeah. So they keep changing yeah. their mind. No, no, no. This time it's three puffs and and ten compressions, and then I'm, then three months <laughs> later, no, 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 no. Two puffs, eight chest compressions. It's like make up your mind. <laughs> Well, you know, um, the important thing is to try to keep the blood circulating and the heart beating, uh, and hopefully not break somebody's ribs. Which oh no, I I, I was told when I was training, you're going to break somebody's ribs. Yeah, I mean harder That's than because I'm a large person. Um, yeah. So when I push it's, down on your chest, it's with considerable force, even if I'm being gentle. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes that can't be helped. Um. So yes, before we get started with anything, Syria. Uh, yeah. You know, it just seems like we really were really big fans of Assad did this. I 
getting kind of sick of the same old narrative. Because this, this is what the second time or the third time that we've done this and said, oh, it's Assad. He needs to go. Come on. Well, he, he kind of does need to go, but firing 59 missiles at him is no way to do it. I mean, it's a way to piss off Russia if that is the intent. They warned the Russians. No, no, I'm like, just uh, by the way, mean... in 20 minutes, that airbase is about to get hit. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm the missiles saying... have just left the ship, so you've got about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. I'm just saying, I mean... A lot of people said the reason to vote for um, Trump was that he wouldn't get us into World War Three with Russia. Well, you know. Those people well, we'll have see. obviously never read his Twitter. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens now, I guess. Um, but if you ever thought he was anti-establishment, there were a couple of moves in the last few days that should have proven to you that that is not true. Either... He is, or never has been, anti-establishment, or the deep state always gets its way. He's never been uh, anti-establishment. Oh, I know, but I'm just saying. <laughs> it's, a, I mean, it's an easy you know answer. <laughs> I understand that. I'm just saying. I mean, he he goes to all the right dinner parties. His parents made sure. Um, I am saying that the deep state always gets its way. I think that much is true, right? I mean, it, Bannon's off certain councils and people who are outside well, that, that, that actually eh, has I mean, made things probably a bit better because <laughs> he he really is nuts um bannon's different he's definitely someone to watch out for he um he almost reminds me of that weird guy from russia the you know putin's guy who, yeah. who's kind of in charge of all their yeah, he has. He runs one of the media networks. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, he's also a big fan of what they call asymmetrical warfare. Yeah. So, you know, one day you're, you know, going to go kill all the gays, and the next day you're funding a gay rights organization. You you don't know what the narrative is because it's so fucking confusing, and I see a lot of that happening here. I forget what they call it. Um. Oh, but he's a really interesting one to look at. Do you know what I'm talking about? Just mostly because he, um, he's just weird. What is it called? Uh, crap. Now I've got to look it up and that's going to (laughs) take me a little while, which just makes me nuts. You could just sum it up as crap. Um. Well, it kind of is crap, but there's there's a term for it, actually, which is scary. What's it called? Um, something-ism. And it, it's the guy's first name. You know what I mean? Weird. Yeah. Just kind of meh. This whole thing's kind of a shit show. But uh, politics always is. How's it going over your way? Uh, it's a shit show. It's a shit show. <laughs> so that's the one thing we can count on. Politics is shit. And here we are. <laughs> All right. Wow. 
no listeners. That's great. All right. So do you want to pick one or should I pick one? Because I don't see any. There's no sign of Mr. Clark. Oh, you start. Okay. Um, the First Amendment, I'm not going to. Let's go the Fourth Amendment and access to automobile black boxes. That kind of seems like, to me, it seems like it's interesting. You know, it's very lawyerish. <laughs> um, most cars manufactured in the past three years come with events, data recorders, sometimes known as black boxes. These devices are computers that record and store crash data in the event of an accident. Under regulations adopted by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the event data recorders must record 15 data inputs. They include engine RPM, steering, the length and severity of the crash, and braking during the crash. The data on the devices are intentionally difficult to access. Doing so generally requires specialized equipment that a typical car owner won't have. A new Florida state court decision State versus Warsham considers an interesting question. How does the Fourth Amendment apply to government efforts to retrieve data from event data recorders? Warsham was in a terrible accident and his car was impounded. Twelve days later, the police downloaded the data from the event data recorder without obtaining a warrant. Warsham has been charged with drunken driving, vehicular homicide, and the police want to use the data from the event data recorder to show Warsham's guilt. And the question is, does the Fourth Amendment allow it? A Florida court divided two to one. According to the majority, accessing the data is a search that requires a warrant. Because the police access the data without a warrant, the evidence must be suppressed. From majority opinion, the car's black box is analogous in it. <laughs> that is not how you pronounce that word. <laughs> to other electronic storage devices for which courts have recognized a reasonable expectation of privacy. Modern technology facility facilitates the storage of large quantities of information on small portable devices. The emerging trend is to require a warrant to search these devices. See Riley v. California. Um, requiring a warrant to search cell phones sees uh, incident to arrest. Smallwood uh, requiring warrant to search cell phone in incident to arrest. Uh, State versus KSA requiring warrant to search abandoned but locked cell phone. The majority offers several rationales for its decision, but this seems to be the main one. Extracting and interpreting the information from a car's black box is not like putting a car on a lift and examining the brakes or tires. Because the recorded data is not exposed to the public, and because the stored data is so difficult to extract and interpret, we hold there is a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information protected by the Fourth Amendment, which required law enforcement in the absence of extinguishing circumstances to obtain a warrant before extracting the information from an impounded vehicle. Although electronic data recorders do not yet store the same quality of information as a cell phone, nor is it of the same personal nature, the rationale for requiring a warrant to search a cell phone is informative in determining whether a warrant is necessary to search an immobilized vehicle's data recorder. These recorders document more than what is voluntarily conveyed to the public, and information is inherently different from tangible mechanical parts of a vehicle. Just as cell phones evolve to contain more and more personal information, as the electronic system in cars have gotten more complex, the data recorders are able to record more information. The difficulty in extracting such information buttresses an expectation of privacy. The dissent argues that people have no reasonable expectation of privacy in the data stored in an event data recorder. In contrast to a cellular phone, the EDR does not contain a broad array of private information, such as photos, passwords, and other sensitive records previously found in the home, uh, Riley v. California. 
Significantly, the EDR in the instant case did not contain GPS information relative to the vehicle's travels, which may be subject to privacy protection. See United States v. Jones. Um, Sotomayor concurring, expressing concern with GPS information, which reflects a wealth of data about a person's familiar political, professional, religious, and sexual associations. As noted in the majority opinion, the EDR in this case was only recording speed and braking data. The car's change in velocity, steering input, yaw rate, angular rate, and safety belt status, system voltage, and airbag warning lamp information. However, this data had not been knowingly inputted by the appellate. In fact, it is likely that the appellate did not even know the vehicle that he was driving had an EDR. Therefore, it would be a stretch to conclude that the appellate sought to preserve this information as private. So, yeah. That's where we are, I guess. It's it's a pretty pretty tricky question based on the current Fourth Amendment case law, applying the case well, law. Yeah. It's it sh it should need a warrant, but if it's be if there's been a death in a traffic accident, they're going to get the warrant no problem anyway. It's like, we suspect yeah. this guy was drunk or whatever. The judge is just going to go, okay. Yeah. So it's not really exactly. a problem for the police, as far as I can see. No, it, it's not. It's just an extra step for them to have to go through. You know? Yeah. Um, and I, I, a lot of people would disagree, but I think uh, black boxes and cars are a brilliant thing. Because, <laughs> really? you know, it, it gives you it gives the, the police more data to work out what happened during the crash. I don't think they're a bad thing necessarily. I'm just saying, I mean, I think you should need a warrant to obtain them too. Yeah. You know, I mean, and what's it going to take you an extra five minutes? Really? Call up a judge? I need a warrant? Or, I mean, I don't Yeah, know I mean, they should need a warrant them. because you don't want them doing it for every driver on the road just because they right. can. It should mm -hmm. only be when it's a major incident. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, I don't know. Who knows? But, yeah, that was from the Washington Post's Vocal Conspiracy column, well, which is pretty good. I didn't read the whole yeah, thing. I, I have to say, though, if you watch... Um, it's less so in the American shows, but in the British police shows, oh. uh, a lot, there is one, there's a few that are basically the motorway police. Um, and the crash investigators the police have here <laughs> right. amazingly quick at figuring out what happened literally guy turns up at the accident has a look at the marks on the road and goes they lost control here they applied their <laughs> brakes here they, they bounced off that barrier then they went over there and, and you're like you've only been there five minutes how do you work all that out <laughs> well, I, literally they're so I, experienced Yeah. well they're experienced but they also have really good training yeah. You know what I mean? You've said it before. It's not like you're sent to some county area where there's no standard of how you get educated. You know what I mean? There's a county standard, but there's nothing. There's no state. There's no federal. Um, this It's completely different in the UK. Oh, and uh, the, the crash data recorders. Um, mm -hmm. In the event of the police getting hold of them, they can actually, of course, do a computer model mm -hmm. of exactly what the car did. And they can do, you know, like yeah. a graphic, mm -hmm. <laughs> so in which they can play in court while the guy, you know, while the crash expert gives his evidence. Yeah, which you know, that's actually helpful, I think, for the jury. 
Yes. Um, I mean, it might not contain sensitive data, but it's still, I don't know, it just feels oogie. Um, just getting that information with nothing, you know? And it's also kind of oogie knowing that it's there and people don't know. You know what I mean? I don't know. As far as I'm aware, just about every car made in the last 20 years has the, the capacity to do this. Sweet. So now you know. And if you're, in, if you're in one of the premium vehicles, the big Mercedes, BMWs, mm-hmm. they record everything. Every, every right. It's constantly recording the whole status of the vehicle. And I don't know how much time it records... But mm-hmm. literally, yeah, it uh, monitors the position of all the switches, you know. Sure. Well, I mean... How and, your seat's and, adjusted, everything. Wow, <laughs> that is just... that That is way too much data. That is way too much data. But, you know, I guess... Well, that's that's to do with, with the, da- the data collection from the car companies because they want to know how people are using their cars so they can improve them. Yeah, okay. Well, that's why know. Mercedes and BMWs tend to be such good cars. <laughs> well, I understand what you're saying, but there's also, I don't know, I think you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your vehicle. And yeah. I'll well, say so nor- normally a lot of excess data wouldn't be used for it by anybody but the car maker. Because yeah. they've been doing it for years. I mean, Mercedes have certainly been doing it for nearly 40 years. Right. Um. Recording data from cars, but BMW about the same, I would think. Probably, but none of it's made public, and they don't—they don't sell on the data either, because that gives their competitors information. Yeah, which they just keep it to themselves. You know, um, last week when we talked about, uh, you know, what what uh, what happened with our privacy protections being just sort of, you know given away and it says here you go here you go comcast here you go what what i find fucking disturbing is looking at how much data comcast gets about you and they're like we're not gonna sell it we have our own advertisers and it's like do you know how disgusting it is that that makes me glad that they're not gonna sell that information about me but they kind of are you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not happy with this whole mess. I think we're becoming a data-driven market. I don't think that we're becoming a market of money anymore. It's all data. It's kind of been a data market for about the last decade at least. Um, You'd notice it more now, though, I think. It's yeah. more overt. It, before well, it's because everyone's doing it now. <laughs> right, no, and it was very, it was clandestine before. You didn't really know. Now you know. And, you know, it's, it's, there's something, there's something to be said about, uh, it, it makes it harder to obtain your privacy. But, um, it makes you gladder for what you can obtain, I guess. I think it's also kind of nice that nobody can hide. Not even the politicians anymore. So, do you like anything in this document at all, Barry? <laughs> no. Um, of no. course not. Okay. Uh, let, uh, go, go with uh, mankind. Okay. 
<clears throat> student has grade docked for using mankind in English paper. A Northern Arizona University student lost credit on an English paper for using the word mankind instead of a gender neutral alternative. A Northern Arizona University student lost credit on an English paper for using the word mankind instead of a gender neutral alternative. Kaylin Jeffers, an English major at NAU, told Campus Reform that she received an email from one of her professors, Dr. Ann Scott, informing her that she had been docked one point out of a possible 50 on a recent paper for problems with the word with diction, word choice, related to use of the word mankind as the synonym for humanity. I would be negligent as a professor who is running a class about the human condition and the assumptions we make about being human if I did not also raise this issue of gender language and ask my students to respect the need for gender neutral language, Scott explained. The words we use matter very much or else teachers would not be making an issue of this at all and the MLA would not be making recommendations for gender neutral language at a national level. Scott then offered to let Jeffers revise the paper to earn additional points in five categories including diction, but noted that she is under no obligation to do so. Now respect your choice and leave your diction choices as is and make whatever political and linguistic statement you want to by doing so, the professor wrote. By the same token, I will still need to subtract a point because if your choice will not be made in the letter or spirit of this particular class, which is all about having you and the other students looking beneath your assumptions and understanding that mankind does not mean all people to all people, it positively does not. After our first essays, we were given a list of do's and don'ts based off errors my professor found in our essays. Most of them make sense, just things like make sure you're numbering your pages and cite in proper MLA format, but she said we had to use gender-neutral language, Jeffers told Campus Reform. Included with this rule were several examples of what was and wasn't okay to use. In one of these examples, she said that we could not use the word mankind, instead we should use humankind. I thought this was absurd and I wasn't sure if she was serious. Jeffers decided to test the policy on our next paper by including two instances of the word mankind. And when the paper came back with the requisite points taken off, she requested a meeting with Scott. I stated I agree with everything she said about my paper except my use of mankind. She proceeded to tell me that NAU English Department, as well as the Modern Language Association, are pushing for gender-neutral language and that all students must abide by this, Jeffers recalled. She told me that Mankind does not refer to all people, only males. I refuted to state that it does refer to all people, but she proceeded to tell me that I was wrong. Mankind is sexist, and I should make an effort to look beyond my preset positions and ideologies, as is the focus of the class. Jeffers noted that Scott informed her she could make the appeal to the grade to the department chair, but otherwise refused to correct her original markdown, elaborating on her reasoning in the aforementioned email to Jeffers. Following the meeting, Scott also sent an email to the entire class recounting an important discussion I had with our class members today about gender-neutral language, using the incident as an opportunity to explain why she imposes the requirement. In a class such as this, where the course goals, discussions, readings, and assignments are all focused on what makes us human, and the assumptions that we make about such a concept is crucial. We also understand that our word choices mean a great deal and have consequences in terms of what we reveal about our assumptions about ourselves and the world generally, Scott asserted. She then listed several examples of rhetorical prejudice found in reading assignments, such as a father telling his son to find a woman to procreate with, calling someone akin of Cain to imply that they have an evil nature, and referring to a distinguished, uh, disfigured person as a moor. 
of the examples directly touches on the issue of gender neutral language, but Scott went on to elaborate that in a similar fashion, the words we choose to refer to humanity and to people in general also have a history of concept and built in assumptions. Scott concluded by vehemently denying that gender neutral language is merely a question of political correctness, pointing out that both the Modern Language Association and the American Psychological Association have put up guidelines promoting gender neutral language. The issue goes beyond political correctness for my colleagues, and I recognize that words to help create our reality, power dynamics, and relationships among people, she told the class. You're welcome to make a statement about your politics or confidence or belief by using gender-specific language in your papers, and in many cases, gender-specific language is called for, when you can discern with certainty the gender of the characters and authors you're discussing. However, I'll still have to subtract a point or two for any kind of language that refers to all people as mankind, or all readers as him, slash he for reasons I've outlined carefully above. Campus Forum reached out to Dr. Scott as well as the Dean of the College that houses the English Department in the English Department Chair, but I responded by press time. This article will be updated if a response is received. And my response to this alleged professor <laughs> would be, go boil your head, you <laughs> ball bag. I mean... That's, that's gender neutral. <laughs> <laughs> boil your head well i mean it it really is it's petty and ridiculous it's supposed to be mm -hmm. english yeah as long as the word was used validly right <laughs> it should make no difference that it's got a gender spin on it the I person agree. who needs to open up their mind and 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 get rid of built-in assumptions is the professor I would agree. <laughs> no, I would agree. She's a I mean, closed-minded, well, idiot, basically. How, how well, she's a professor of English, I have no idea. It is a closed-minded moron. You've got to be used gender-neutral language there, Larry. Nope. Otherwise we'll lose a point. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I, uh, I did English at university. Uh, don't have a degree in it, but I've studied English. And, yeah, she can go boil her head. <laughs> I mean... It is ridiculous. And it and then they and, and then they wonder why kids are so sensitive and need trigger warnings and that it's because you got morons like this teaching them. <laughs> I I don't you know, I, I do understand that there's a need to be sensitive to people. I do. You know. And I realize for a lot of people gender this is, the, a, a this is definitely thing. the but first time yeah I've heard different. anyone have a complaint about mankind. Yeah, Apart from really, really, really obnoxious feminists. <laughs> you know the I ones I mean. I, I do, yeah, I, I do. And I mean here's the thing, I, I don't have a problem with feminism. I don't have a problem with people opting for, you know, equal gender rights. I don't have a problem with any of this stuff. No, neither do I. I have, I have a problem with people making a big deal about stuff. Yeah. Um, I think... <sighs> oh, and Society yeah, the other, the other thing, the other thing, okay. right. This is in, uh, an English class. Mm -hmm. That appears to think it's a philosophy class, <laughs> the way she speaks. Yeah. Well, I mean, here the two are the distinct. They're they're not the same thing. Oh no, they're not. I will say I love philosophy, um, but I really do think that you've got 
society changes based on how the world, you know, changes itself. You know what I mean? And those, those changes that happen are organic or should be, because if they're not organic, then they're forced. And I don't know, it just feels odd. This feels like a forced change and it doesn't really need to be. Yeah. I mean, this, I, think, this I is... think what it does yeah. is it takes people who are, you know, completely neutral on the idea and, and it takes some of them and makes them hostile to the idea. Yeah. And that's not really helping. Anyone. I mean, this is politicizing a word. Now that yeah. does happen, mm-hmm. but when it's a generalized word that doesn't have racial connotations, okay, mm-hmm. it has some gender ones, mm-hmm. but not to anyone who actually has read the definition in a dictionary um <laughs> that's what yeah. gets me right it's mankind mm-hmm. what yeah. dictionary is this woman reading where it's marked down as a as not neutral because as far as i neutral. remember it's completely neutral so mm-hmm. if you look at mankind it's you know it basically mentions humanity um <laughs> yeah it's humanity as a whole i mean yeah. it's supposed to be Honestly, supposed to be inclusive language, not alienating language. You know what I mean? And I just, I don't know what to get out of this. I just don't. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I would, I would not be. I if if that had happened to me at university, uh, I'd have probably left the university and made a big deal of it because it's ridiculous. <laughs> no, it's it's like I said. I really do think. Things like that make people hostile to ideas. Yeah. Oh, I, there, there are ways to learn about words and how they hurt and how to share them. And... But that shouldn't be in an English class. That should be in a humanities class. A sociology <laughs> class, a philosophy <laughs> class. Yeah. Um, English class is learning about the use of English. Mm-hmm. Where... You can use any words you like as long as they're part of the language you're studying. Because you might want to be deliberately aggressive and use Mm -hmm. derogatory terms. Mm -hmm. But to lump mankind in with that is just ridiculous. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, to me, I think it's something that probably more for sociology class. Yeah, it's definitely Uh, the professor has an agenda on this one. A sociology class, a psychology class, um, you know, even women's history, I could, women's studies, I took women's studies. Uh, I could see that being included in women's studies. You know, I, I did. I took women's studies in high school. I went to an incredibly liberal place for high school. Um, and I got an amazing education because I really do think you do get the best education from people who have had time to look at everything and think it over i don't think you generally get a great education from the educational system in public but yeah i have great sympathy for this student because i have to say when i was doing my um o-level english during the composition mm -hmm. paper in the prelim so the last exam before the final exam i wrote an essay uh it was about um 
sensory deprivation torture, but we don't need to go there. Um, <laughs> you know, every, Are you sure? It's what because, every 16 year old's know, writing about, you know. Oh, um, sure. You know, yeah. But I used a word in it, and then when I got the marks back, I got 34 points out of 35. And the reason for the markdown was, oh, you, you, that word doesn't really fit in this context. So yeah, I argued it. The word in question was joust, and I was using it in the way the the victim was jousting with his tormentors, kind of thing, right? Right. And I'm like, oh, it doesn't really suit that. So after an hour of arguing with the, and it was an English professor, even though it was only mm -hmm. high school. Right. Welcome to the old school systems in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. She eventually just admitted we're not allowed to give people 100% marks. So I had to put something down as the reason <laughs> for taking a point off. And that I could live with. That's right. understandable, you know. Mm -hmm. She has been told she can't give anybody 100%. Mm -hmm. But telling right. me it was because I'd misused a word, <laughs> that yeah, didn't no. go so well. <laughs> right. I mean, but they're never going to tell you that. Uh, Alex says he's going to come on at 7. I think I might do this next one about Comcast. Okay. What do you think? Yeah. I think this is pretty interesting. I mean, we're just going down the... We're just going down the list tonight, guys. But uh, I think you'll find this interesting. Uh, Comcast paid civil rights groups to support killing broadband privacy rules. For years, one of the greasier lobbying and PR tactics used by the telecom industry has been the use of minority groups to parrot awful policy positions. Historically, such groups are happy to take financing from a company like Comcast in exchange for repeating whatever talking point memos are thrust in their general direction even if the policy being supported may dramatically hurt their constituents. The strategy has played a starring role in supporting anti-consumer mega-mergers, killing attempts to make a, <clears throat> the cable box market more competitive, and efforts to eliminate net neutrality. The goal is to provide an artificial wave of support for bad policies, used then to justify bad policy votes. And despite this being something the press has highlighted for the better part of the last several decades, the practice continues to work wonders. Hell, pretending to serve minority communities while effectively undermining them with bad internet policy is part of the main reason Comcast now calls top lobbyist David Cohen the company's chief diversity officer, something the folks at Comcast hate when I point it out, by the way. Last week, we noted how Congress voted to kill relatively modest but necessary FCC privacy protections. You'd be hard-pressed to find a single financially objective group or person that supports such a move. Even Donald Trump's most obnoxious supporters were relatively disgusted by the vote. Yet The Intercept notes that groups like the League of United Latin American Citizens and the OCA, Asian Pacific American Advocates, breathlessly urged the FCC to kill the rules, arguing that snoopertizing and data collections would be a great boon to low-income families. The League of United Latin American Citizens and the OCA, Asian Pacific American Advocates, two self-described civil rights organizations, told the FCC that many consumers, especially households with limited incomes, appreciate receiving relevant advertising that is key to their interests and provides them with discounts on the products and services they use. Of course, folks like Senator Ted Cruz then used this entirely farm support to insist that there were strenuous objections from throughout the internet community at the creation of the role which simply wasn't true. 
Most people understood that the rules were a direct response to some reckless and irresponsible privacy practices at major ISPs, ranging from charging consumers more to keep their data private or using consumer credit data to provide even worse customer support than they usually do. Yes, what consumer, minority or otherwise, doesn't want to pay significantly more money for absolutely no coherent reason? It only took a little bit of digging for The Intercept to highlight what the real motivation for the support of anti-consumer policies was. OCA has long relied on the telecom industry cash. Verizon and Comcast are listed as business advisory council members to the OCA and provide funding along with corporate guidance to the organization. Last year, both companies sponsored the OCA annual gala. AT&T, Comcast, Time Warner Cable, Charter Communications, and Verizon serve as part of the LUAC Corporate Alliance, providing advice and assistance to the group. Comcast gave $240,000 to LUAC between 2004 and 2012. When a reporter asked these groups why they're supporting internet policies that run in stark contrast to their constituents, you'll usually be met with either breathless indignation at the idea that these groups are being used as marionettes, or no comment whatsoever, which was the case in the internet's latest report. This kind of co-opting still somehow doesn't get much attention in the technology press or policy circles, so it continues to work wonders. And it will continue to work wonders as the administration shifts its gaze from putting privacy, from gutting privacy protections to killing net neutrality. Did I hear you popping, Alex? Hello? You did. I did. Hi. How's it going? Going good. Um, you want to do the update now? I just wanted to read something really quick, unless you want to hold off or do you have an opinion on that? <laughs> Um, no, I didn't listen to the entire thing, and I was actually kind of reading other stuff. I, I, I chimed in just to make sure that I didn't yeah. miss it this time. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> no big deal. Um, yeah, no, just, uh, just talking about uh, you know, the things that lobbyists do, <laughs> kind of, uh, but not really. So um, you want to do the update now, or are you still getting caught up? No, we can we can uh, we can get to it. There's All some, right. yeah. All right. All right. Um, are we ready, Gary? Yep. Go ahead. Okay. Good evening, and welcome to the Cassant update for the week of four seven twenty seventeen. Hi, Alex. How are you this week? <laughs> <laughs> um, apparently not all here. I apologize <laughs> That's okay. for kind of blowing the the start time. I I stuffed okay. myself full of a low carb pizza and then took a nap. <laughs> low carb pizza. So is that made with like cauliflower crust or? Yeah, that's kind of the hook. Number one, I love pizza, and then I all discovered right. that you can make, you know, not bread with. Yeah cauliflower and an egg mm -hmm. and so i'm just sort of i used to make pizza for a living right. um and so i'm just fascinated with that mm -hmm. um so i yeah that's my new thing is <laughs> this low carb pizza that's great i i saw there was one that you could make with um not to get too far off topic and we are sorry i yeah. saw there was one you could make with like parmesan cheese and egg which kind of makes like a harder, less doughy sort of crust. I wonder how that would be. Just throwing that out there. Sorry. <laughs> no, totally cool. I, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I think taco shells is what, it's my next project anyway. Nice. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, we digressed. <laughs> yeah, sorry. 
Um, so, yeah, what's new and exciting this week? So um, this week is, uh, and I think I may have been kind of reporting this wrong because I know that uh, the Senate was, I guess, in session today. They, they confirmed uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch after suspending the Senate rules, which require a, a 60, a 60 votes to confirm um, uh-huh. a Supreme Court justice. Um, now, this is they suspended the rules for confirming a justice. Everything else um, that requires 60 votes still requires 60 votes. So Perfect. this is this is imp- <laughs> this is important for us because okay. of the budget that we're right. going to be talking about. So okay. um, just segueing into uh, that, you know, we've been really pushing our engagement to support uh, the Cole Bishop Amendment and the H.R. 1136. And it sort of had this tagline of like, this is the week to do it. And absolutely, this mm-hmm. this was the week to get it done um, right. because, you know, lawmakers are in D.C., their head is in the game. Mm-hmm. Hopefully... And, um, you know, people are working together, they're in the halls, they're talking to each other, this and that. So right. it was it was vitally important that we got a hold of them right. while they were in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, so today, uh, yesterday, whenever people left D.C., um, marks the beginning of Easter break, spring break, however you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, so um, lawmakers are going home to their districts this weekend and uh, will be there for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this means that um, a bunch of them, well, it, it means that Monday, Casa uh, will be following up again with an email to everyone saying, here is all of the uh, district information for this lawmaker or that lawmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and make sure that you're making phone calls to this particular office, uh, or um, perhaps you are going for a visit. Mm-hmm. Um, people should be on the lookout for, it, it's absolutely a great idea if you haven't already to follow your, your two senators and your representative, follow them on Facebook and Twitter and get on their mm-hmm. mailing list. Right. They will communicate via those means um you know town hall meetings sometimes they'll do these like you know get together for coffee with so-and-so and and, you know they'll show Mm -hmm. up at a diner and um look all blue collar and stuff like that yeah right yeah no they do they really do yeah Yeah, and and those are those are often you know those are i come prepared with the question and the question is very simple i mean you can sort of lead it in with an introduction you can give, tell your story, you know, for me, hi, my name is Alex Clark. I, you know, quit smoking after 21 years by switching to a smoke-free vapor product. Mm-hmm. If the FDA rules continue to be implemented as they're written, um, I, I will lose access to the wide range of products that are currently available to me. Right. Uh, that being the case, and, and considering that there are millions of people like me throughout the country who have quit smoking by switching to vapor products, would you support me a, a voting constituent in your district um and uh and support the cole bishop amendment in the 2017 budget right something like that and it will be sure to provide you know talking points so that you can kind of develop your own your own wrap um 
so uh yeah that's that's coming up um I, I was just I was laughing about the town, town hall because um, my my Congress critter is Marco Rubio. <laughs> We're lucky if he shows up half the time. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, he doesn't even show up to Congress most of the time, but that's neither here nor there. It, it, it's cool. I mean, well, my my well my my senators are actually mm -hmm. pretty important. Um, Cory Booker, right. who's just you know a rising star, mm -hmm. and then. Um, uh, Senator Menendez. Um, Menendez has ties to his, he's very sympathetic to the cigar industry. Right. Um, I guess because of his um, Central and South American roots. And roots. Right. Um, he's also formerly, he's from where I live, actually, right. which is very, it's one of the most, first of all, it's most densely populated in the city, or it's right. most densely, densely populated city in the country. And right. it's like 90, I want to say it's like 87 or 93% Hispanic right. um, or Latino. I, I don't know what the politically correct term is anymore. Um, right. So and this at one point was a very, there was a very heavy, very dense Cuban population. So mm -hmm. um, there, there was a time when, um, you know, the, the mobbed up type people, this is, <laughs> this is where they would come to get their cigars. Oh. Um, or just, I guess anybody actually would come to get there. It was Havana on the Hudson was its nickname for a while. Oh, cool. So there are roots to the cigar industry in, in Union City, um, mm -hmm. I believe just because of its cultural history. Um, right. And uh, not, 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 nothing grows here. Um, there's not enough open space to grow things. Mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, so... Uh, Menendez is is from this area and um, has been, I believe, supportive. I, I believe he is supportive of the cigar carve out, which is right. something that's com completely separate from from what we're asking. Right. Um, but um, has yet to really come over to the vapor side right. on things. Um, but at least he has shown a willingness to think outside the box, I guess. Uh, or you know support the people that give him campaign donations. I, yeah, I yeah, that's usually a pretty important thing. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, people who have talked to Senator Rubio, um, Congressman Rubio, yeah, uh, have told me before that, you know, he is incredibly supportive of, of the FDA cigar regulations. I'm not so sure how he feels about vape products. Um, supportive of a carve-out for cigars? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Extremely. Yeah, um, and it really should be a short step. I mean, a lot of the, you know, what we saw during the comments, the comment period on the deeming mm -hmm. regulations from the cigar people, a lot of it was coming from, I believe, one manufacturer slash retailer, yeah. one or two, um, I think yeah, in I Florida. Mean, yeah, no, I mean, and down here, there's um, there's a place um, that's... It, it's like little Havana. It's the place where they make all the cigars. Um, and, you know, now there's a lot of nightlife and stuff there, but I mean, there's still cigar factories. There's people that make cigars by hand there still. And there are people that traditionally deal with tobacco that will all lose their jobs. And, and this whole big, huge chunk, this place called Ybor City will just die. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, it will just die. There'll be nothing there. Ybor City is amazing. Yeah, oh, I love Ybor City. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's it's amazing? Like... I, I, I'm talking about it, and you know where it is. That's yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, we went there. We when there was um, VCC was in Tampa, and I right. remember walking around with um, Julie and Paul Blair, and, right. and we met up and walked around one mm-hmm. afternoon. Um, yeah. And it's like I would. There's like one tattoo shop for every three bars or something like that it's i mean yep. if you want to if you want to get yourself into trouble ybor city is a place to go oh ybor city is amazing i mean every block is kind of a every square few square feet or so is just a, one kind of club one kind of bar one kind of you know, like like you said tattoo parlor it, it really is amazing i mean and there's something there for everybody there's old goth clubs that are shaped like castles which is kind of neat um you know and and there's places you can go where women will hand roll you cigars i mean it's just amazing there's hookah bars there's like gaslight bars it really is an amazing place to go and walk through and i don't drink anymore but it's still taking in the nightlight there is just completely unforgettable and it's the first time i ever saw a coyote ugly bar (laughs) So there you go. Sorry. Nice. I digress. Yeah, we're, we're making a habit of getting off topic here. That's, but that's fine. I mean, that's a great point. You know, I mean, you have places like that 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 cater to um, to that consumer niche, and and that would you know, this rule is seriously going to impact you know the city. It's not just the businesses. So no, um, yeah, that's an important point, and explains why um, some senators are on board with the cigar things. Um, so yeah, and it's, it's, but there, you know, there is an effort obviously to, um, kind of get some, win some votes in the Senate. Um, and, and that will be continuing through the break. Um, so look for more emails from us. I've been kind of, um, diligent about sending out at least one email a day, urging people to, uh, you know, click the link and send an email. Um, yeah. Also making sure to, you know, several of these emails went along for, you know, it came along with, with phone numbers. And it, it sounds like you know, I got some feedback from people who made the calls and left messages and spoke to people and it was, mm-hmm. it was good. So I, I, I think that we're making some noise in Congress and, and we'll, we'll keep that up over the next two weeks. Awesome. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's 1136 and the Cole Bishop bill. Um okay. The other thing that I am looking forward to doing, and I want to kind of give everybody a bit of a heads up about this, okay. um, I, I, and I'm, I need to put together a draft, so it's still, I need to feel this out and make sure that everything actually does come out worded correctly, um, okay. but uh, sometimes it's easier to just talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, some of you may have heard uh, about or, or may have seen um, this effort to uh, get uh, HHS Secretary Tom Price to actually delay the deeming yeah. regulations by two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is still an iron in the fire. This is still right. uh, something that uh, I think that we should we should be um, asking for, sure. um, and particularly because 
there is no guarantee that the Cole Bishop Amendment makes it all the way through the budget process. Right. Um, so it's always good to have some backup plans. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, um, the, the trade associations have been working to get um, business signatures on uh, a letter to Tom Price. Right. And, um, you know, in, in talking with them and, and I think just generally, you know, people can kind of do the math. Um, if you if you spent any time in, in vapor groups or talking advocacy with people on Facebook or right. uh, whatever other online, um, if you're doing ECF or whatever, Reddit, you know, you probably have heard, um, well, there's not a whole lot of businesses that have joined trade associations. No. I mean, uh, you know, a good example is that in the state of Pennsylvania, where at one point they had 300 businesses. Mm -hmm. um, recently, I think 33 businesses had responded to um, a call for, you know, some, some kind of, you know, information about their businesses. And, right. and this wasn't just like somebody randomly collecting data. This was the Pennsylvania Vapor Association reaching <laughs> out to people saying, hey, we need some concrete numbers about your businesses so that right. we can make this case to the state legislature. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, you know, when you're talking taxes and budget stuff, you really do need to show up with some very real numbers. So, right. um, you know, there's a lot of people that they're just not plugged into all of this advocacy stuff. Right. Um, and and I, I hate to say it. I, I don't want to put it in that terms, actually. There are lots of small mom and pop shops or just what? small businesses that mm -hmm. are not, not aware of the value of being a member of a trade association. Sure. Um, both from an information standpoint, like the information you can provide to that trade association mm -hmm. and the information that you can get as a business, there's, you know, being a member of association means that you're sort of, you're getting first crack at, you know, training opportunities. Um, there may be data that's available to you. That's not available to, uh, perhaps your competitors, mm -hmm. um, you know, things that will help you improve your business. That's, those are all really important things about being a member of, of a trade association. Sure. I um, mean, it also shows, you know, when you go to talk to a legislator that they have a body of people that they represent. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, 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 if leaders, if leadership from a trade association can show up to a legislator's office and say, Hey man, uh, I am from this association and here's how member, how, how many members we have. Uh, we're a voting block. We, we will decide, you know, who's going to be set in policy. Um, okay. That's, that's a pretty powerful tool. Um, but, you know, uh, we, we kind of don't really have that um, yeah. because stuff like that actually does take years and years and years to build. Um, and, and to be perfectly honest, I mean, you know, I would think I, I keep daydreaming about a day when CASA has the budget to run ads on TV <laughs> um, you know, we just don't, um, and, and it's, it's just not a medium that we can break into right now. Um, but I mean, if there is somebody out there who is ready to cut a check for us to do a media campaign over the air, um, that totally, there's a place for you to do that on our website. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think I'll be happy to work on that. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, um, 
I again, I've, I've gone off on a wild tangent here, but the, to, to bring everything back home, right. um, you know, the point being that so the trade associations have sort of a limited reach. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when we all sat down and talked about this, um, it, it uh, I, I, I very quickly got the, the picture here. You know, the idea is that we have this letter and we're going to get potentially thousands of businesses signing on to this letter. Right. Because there's well over 10,000 vapor businesses mm-hmm. in the country. I mean, between, you know, independent retailers and, and manufacturers, right. that's a pretty big number. And when we are talking about, you know, this, this deeming rule is going mm-hmm. to put, you know, take that 10,000 number and multiply it by, you know, anywhere from two to seven. Right. And that's how many people you're putting out of work and there are and there's even there's even more dollars associated with that so um you know somebody who is is is, whose mind functions that way will look at that number and say oh wait yeah this is going to be doing some pretty serious damage um Mm -hmm. to the economy even if i don't believe in the health stuff even if i don't believe that this is a magical cure for smoking Mm-hmm. This is still a huge, there's a massive economic impact mm-hmm. for a product that really isn't as dangerous as smoking. So yeah, okay, maybe we need to reconsider it. That, that's just, you know, I'm putting words into people's brains, but um, you yeah. get the idea I is do. that the, the numbers really do matter. So mm-hmm. that being the case, um, I know, I know firsthand that CASA has lots of um, lots of people who are employees at small mom and pop shops and mm-hmm. lots of people who run mom and pop shops. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully by now, you know, um, a lot of those people have also found a way to join a, a trade association, but right. um, so some people haven't. Um, some people feel that, that being uh, supportive of CASA or, or paying attention to CASA is all they need to do in order to, to, to move the dial. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, that's fine. I, I don't want to say that I, I don't want to criticize you for doing that because you're doing more than a majority of the people out there. Um, right. I would strictly encourage you to, um, take it to the next level and join an association. Um, but uh, so acknowledging that my plan is to um, send an email out to our entire membership. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you are a small business owner, please add your name and business to this letter. Mm-hmm. If you're a consumer, please take this engagement to your favorite vapor shop and make sure that they've signed. And Not even you your know, favorite vapor shop, for God's sake, any vapor shop, you know? Yeah. Um, Pretty much. And, I mean, whether you like them or not, they're providing a valuable service to people who otherwise might not get vapor products. You know, people who aren't internet savvy or internet users or elderly people or the disabled, you know? Um, and once that's gone, that's gone. Yeah. So, yeah, take it to a random vapor shop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and um and 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 urge them to sign and you can actually this is this is set up this will be set up in such a way that you can you can have them do it from your mobile phone um awesome. it's going to be very very simple and um so we will we will take those names and add them to the larger um you know effort to get awesome. all of these signatures on the letter 
Um, and, 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 you know, because right now the focus is on, on Cole Bishop and 1136, where mm -hmm. you're not really hearing a whole lot about this. And, right. um, you know, there, there really is no, um, there's, there's no time crunch to make this happen. So we've got some time to gather right. up a ton of signature, not much, but we've got some time. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's, it's time that, uh, that we reach out and, and try to get some, some more. I, I, I don't want to be wrong. I suspect that we can get several thousand, um, awesome. yeah. you know, from our membership and from our members going out and, and getting businesses to participate. Um, yeah. I mean, ideally, you know, we have enough people uh, in our membership that, that, that they should be able to go out and just get everybody. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is not, this is, this is, this is such an easy thing for people to do that, um, right. you know, it should be, yeah, so um, that is that's everybody's fair warning when you see a letter coming from CASA that looks like we're working that we're trying to <laughs> when you see an email from CASA that looks like we're veering out of our lane and targeting businesses, um, it's it's really you know it's it's not it's it's actually um, you working we, we, cooperatively with another group to try and. Yeah, it, it, it is, you know, this is all about maximizing participation and, you know, we, I, we acknowledge that we have lots of small businesses, um, you know, in, in our membership. And, yeah. um, and so I, I think we can engage them and, um, get them as part of this effort and, um, you know, so yeah. that's, that's happening next week. Awesome. And then I have, um, some, I think I have a few updates uh, All right. uh, from the state level, and I'm I'm I, f I feel like I'm going to miss a bunch because uh, I have mostly been focused on what's going on at the federal level this week. Mm -hmm. um, so, really quick, uh, another thing to look out for is I need to work on an engagement for Ohio. Um, okay. I know that the OHVTA has their own engagement out. Um, we don't we don't rebroadcast stuff like that, but, um, Casa will be putting one out soon. Um, and I, I meant to get to it this week and just didn't. Um, but, uh, the budget negotiations in, um, Ohio continue. I've seen posts coming out from out of Ohio. These guys have had lots of what sounds like really awesome meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, they're really dialed in and, um, just thanks. I'm sorry. I couldn't make it out there this week. Uh, but, um, they're doing an awesome job. Um, and then uh, uh, what else is happening? Oh, I, I was going to update um, Arizona and uh, somebody had, had emailed me yesterday that they took action on the, um, the, the, the tax bill and they got a, an email back from their lawmaker saying, yeah, this thing's been dead for months. Um, so, uh, and yeah, we put that out kind of hastily and and found out that it wasn't going to go anywhere it was a partisan bill mm -hmm. um and uh and so uh went back to check everything and um the the legislature the legislative the the main legislative session um was tentatively scheduled to end today uh it's it's not a hard and fast mm -hmm. stop but um, today is technically kind of sort of maybe the last day of the legislative session in Arizona. Um, so yay. Um, no, no bad, uh, legislation passing there. Um, 
uh, and what else, what else, what else? New York, uh, New York continues to be uh, a, a bit of an issue. Um, it's, from what I understand, things are going better than they were before. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that people can't, people in the state assembly can't agree on things. Um, and um, that means that, you know, things affecting vapor don't may not have the, enough votes um, to stay in the budget. Uh, so, um, so yeah, but people are still working on it. So okay. um, if you live in New York, just be uh, aware that the budget is still a thing. Nothing has happened um, in our favor. They, I think they sort of, uh, the budget deadline was last this past weekend mm -hmm. and uh they they kind of they knew they were going to blow through the deadline and governor cuomo gave them an extension i believe through this week right. um i don't know if that extension is up next week or if it continues through next week um mm -hmm. but uh yeah be prepared to see things urging people to call the governor or write your, your write your um lawmakers in new york okay. um god what else is going on um, I know there's some other stuff going on and I'm just not going to talk about it because I, I don't, um, I don't know how public everybody is being about it. And, and, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, but all in all, uh, it, it seems like, uh, this week turned out to be not too horrible. Um, and what a, what a resounding recommendation for the week. It was not terrible. Yeah, most of them kind of end that way. Actually, it's, I guess, I don't know. I feel like maybe I feel like I have we we've done these updates, and I've been like, man, this week was awesome. Um, <laughs> but um, for whatever reason, this week my my full official review review is not that awful. Okay, you know, <laughs> it's it's better than we're doomed. We're doomed. The Titanic has hit the iceberg. I'll take it. Yeah, somehow I feel like the sky is not falling going into this weekend. So nice, that is awesome. Okay, that's a that's a cheerful note, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that's, so do you think that's about it? Since we went off on Ebor City and pizza. <laughs> pizza was good. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, if I missed anything, everybody should feel free to send an email to takeaction at kasa.org. Um, that way, Julie can also hear about what a horrible job I'm doing. You're not doing a horrible <laughs> job. I think it, this is hard. How, how do you, you know what I mean? How do you know exactly what to talk about? Well, I don't. You I just, don't. Exactly. I, 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 I poke around and, and usually we've got a list of things, um, stuff that happens, you know, maintaining a blog and a Facebook account is pretty useful for that stuff. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> oh, hey, I mean, oh, I wait, I know what I wanted to say. Okay. God, good. this is, this is why I, I know why I feel good. Um, and actually I want to get the official number here. So we have had our engagement up for, um, supporting, Cole Bishop mm -hmm. um, since January 2nd, I believe. And uh, we, we held off for strategic reasons mm -hmm. uh, in uh, really promoting the hell out of it. 
And we do that because, yeah, and we do that because that for that initial email blast is when you get the most participants every day after that, it just goes down. Right. right? So you want to wait until the closest you can get to relevancy mm -hmm. to, to really push it out. So that's what this week was all about. So in the first, um, you know, like two or three months, uh, we gathered almost 2000 people taking action right. in the past five days we have gotten an additional 5,600 people. Wow, that's really good. So um, that's 5,000, it's uh, in total, it's 7,600 people sending almost 25,000 emails. Awesome. Um, and I, you know, comparing that to the millions of people that use vapor products, I know that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but sure. in, in, you know, uh five days with minimal promotion i mean you know that's that's me sending out email blasts to their to the membership reminding them to open their email mm -hmm. um a couple of posts on facebook and instagram and then of course you have other people who are sharing that and sharing it. you have the, the internet sensation but you know no tv advertising no art no you know editorial taken out in the new york times sure. um you know the things that the big money associations can take care of you know, we, we, we don't have those resources. Um, so on a shoestring, on a shoestring, we managed to gather that many people and get them activated. Um, and, and yeah, and it does take some convincing, um, to get smokers to stand up and fight for themselves because of what we've all been through. So, um, and that being the case, uh, I, I, I don't feel too bad about, um, kind of having an open, uh, an open invitation for people to donate to CASA. Um, yeah. We, you know, we would really like to continue this work. We feel it's important and we hear from people all the time who think it's important too. Um, and also hear from a lot of people who really wish they could donate, but they just can't afford to do it. So um, I understand, you know, everybody's position and, and, and that is what it is. But if you are out there and you are capable of, making recurring donations to CASA, please visit our website. It is at the top menu bar across the top. And we are more than happy to put your, your donations to good use. It's true. It's not like I see anybody doing anything crazy. There's no big parties. There is no huge yeah i, mean, I should maybe i should clarify by good use i don't mean bikini pool parties with lots of bros blowing clouds that's <laughs> not something that that's not our it's not our wheelhouse we're, we're not really experts in putting that together um <laughs> you know and I'm, somebody else can do that um but uh no yeah we we our donations go towards um i would like to hire somebody honestly and um uh, besides okay. myself and uh and and pay for you know, the tools that we use to get people engaged yeah um, which, which i is think not people good. are people would be surprised how expensive some of that stuff is yeah grassroots and, uh, grassroots advocacy is not cheap no no but i'm saying just the tools yeah i just just you, you see the price tag and then you go my god that's that's crazy expensive you know I mean, but yeah, the reach yeah, I mean, is vast 
I, I think some people, you know, I'm sure some people in the business world know, you know, even if you're just managing, a, you know, a contact database through, um, uh, you know, like constant contact or whatever, like once you, you know, there are prices based on, you know, there are, there are sort of thresholds that, that you meet and once, you know, you have like, uh, you know, every 25 or 50,000, you know, it goes up a couple hundred dollars and you could be paying, you know, six or $700 a month to manage a large database of contacts. And if, you know, if you're using that for grassroots advocacy and, you know, you're not a registered nonprofit or whatever, like you're paying for the full boat. I mean, it doesn't matter what issue you're, you're working on here. Um, it can get very expensive to do things. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not easy and it's not cheap. Um, and, uh, so there's that. Yep. Um, you know, everybody with Casa, you know, you get paid, but that's only because there's so much work that needs to get done that you couldn't get done any other way. Yeah. But, but everybody else is a volunteer. Nobody gets anything for that. And we appreciate it. Yeah. So I appreciate all the support that I get from everybody at Casa. And, um, yeah, I couldn't couldn't think of a better group of people to get free labor from. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. <laughs> All right, on, on that happy note, <laughs> I think that's it for this evening, sir. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. So, so with that, I, I guess we'll uh, we'll call it an update, and um, I will uh, be sure to be more on the ball next week. <laughs> no, I, I think it was a good update. I mean, well, besides the fact that I didn't um, actually get to it until about six thirty, but um, well, that's yeah. okay. I should have I should have messaged you earlier, but you know, I didn't know it was pizza day. So now that I know it's, now that I know it's pizza day. I'll message you while I'm still at work. Nice. <laughs> it's a good time. plan. All right. Okay. Well, thank you for everything you do for us, Alex. And we will see you next Friday. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a great night. See ya. You can get CASA updates at CASA.org. You can get CASA updates at SoundCloud. You can get CASA updates by going to... Oh, good God. Wow, I just went blank. <laughs> and I do the spiel every week. Um, by going to iTunes and typing in the search, Casa Media. And all of the updates will be there. And you will always know what Casa is doing. So, thank you for listening. Wow, I, I have been like pulling blanks a lot lately. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> I blame a little carb pizza and things like it. I don't eat low-carb pizza. <laughs> I don't eat low-carb pizza. But when when he mentioned that, yeah, my brain was going, no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. It's, that's Millions of Italian people, you know, crying out. And... Screaming in pain, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not Italian, but, you know, if you're going to eat some carbs, I mean, it should be pizza. Yeah, that I, that I definitely agree with. So... Yeah, I don't do the low carb eating, but uh, you know. I, I mean, the the, vegan, the the problem with modern diet isn't. I mean, yeah, some people like low carb, but pizza, yeah, mm -hmm. 
just as long as you're not using pizza dough made with fully processed flour and you know well it's, if it's, it's properly hard. made pizza dough it's 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 made with uh, much raw flour <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, yeah it isn't bleached to hell that's why it, i mean when you see an actual italian pizza i mean mm -hmm. they cut through the base yeah the the, the dough is not white <laughs> mm -mm. If you go to the likes of Domino's and any of the big chains, yeah, it's all white processed shit. <laughs> yeah, and that's because it keeps but, forever. Yeah, but natural flour, yeah, yeah. that's what people should use. Don't buy yeah. bleached white flour, folks. It's yeah. it's horrible. Tasteless. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I don't so... even use white processed sugar. I use um, golden sugar. I am. It's the same stuff, I, just not bleached. <laughs> I like uh, I like coconut sugar. Yeah. Um, that's not bad. It it has a very earthy flavor to it. Well, it's, it's golden granulated. Um, it's lighter than muscovado. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have as many of the impurities. Yeah. But it hasn't so, been bleached, yeah. so it still sugar. still tastes like white sugar. But hasn't yeah. had all the chemical processes done to it. I mean, Consequently, sugar... your body processes it slower, which mm -hmm. is actually better. Better for you, yeah. I like sugar in the raw, too. Yeah. Yeah, see. But it tends to be raw sugars I've always used. Um, yeah, well, again, it's, it was that incredibly liberal education that I got as a teenager that uh, showed me the really good coffee shops yeah. <laughs> that had the... 800 varieties of tea and only one kind of sugar. Sugar <laughs> in the rock. <laughs> so, yeah, I learned that. At a well, very so, I mean, age. yeah, you, yeah, you go to a, a decent outlet, shall we say. And yeah, mm -hmm. you, 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 there'll be somebody in the front in the queue complaining that, eh, why isn't the sugar granulated? You know, because it's rough crystals. <laughs> it's like, right. that's because it's real sugar. That's real <laughs> sugar. That's before they start screwing with it you should be happy that's what they're giving you well i mean it is a bit rc these days uh the shops don't grind it so that it's granules yeah they, they leave it as little chunks it's kind of like yeah. having sugar cubes but yeah that's the one that cracks me up is sugar cubes so they granulate the sugar and then they compress and then it they back clump in the it together. <laughs> yeah into little clumps yeah it doesn't make any fucking sense Although, I guess it looks nice in a proper tea set? I don't know. I don't know. Kinda. Yeah, I guess. Thank you, Costello. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't, um, yeah. I'm going to do the same. I, I kind of, I really wish we, you know, when... I was younger and we used to have these things called these things called street teams and we had them for like our magazines and our bands and people used to go to places and they used to like post flyers for them for bands that were playing or for their magazines on bulletin boards inside shops and laundromats and all that kind of stuff. I, I really I, I kinda wish we had the same um ethos in our 40s that we did when i was like 18 19 we don't it's a shame because i think we could do a lot with that 
Anyway, I digress. Um, anything in the document jumping out at you? Oh, we could talk, <laughs> we could talk about the mafia. Okay. All right. So you know, it's, uh, you know, you might want to play the music. Stand by for action. We are about to launch Stingray. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Some your drums. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't played this in a while, actually. Um, yeah. And it's because there's been so many other stories, but uh, stingrays are in the news again. Canadian prosecutors cut loose 35 mafia suspects rather than turn over info on stingray devices uh, from the How American Femme Department. Canadian law enforcement bought down a massive criminal conspiracy. Now, thanks to information that it doesn't want released to the court, most of what was bought down will be re-erected by the suspects it's cutting loose. 35 people accused of serious crimes like kidnapping and drug trafficking, so the cases bought against them in a major RCMP investigation into the Montreal Mafia dropped on Tuesday because the Crown no longer wanted to prosecute them. The Crown's sudden change of stance in an investigation dubbed Project Klazema means there are only 11 accused left with cases pending following three series of arrests made between 2014 and May last year. Federal prosecutors Sabrina Deli Frame informed Quebec court judge Laurie Renee Weitzman of the Crown's position during a hearing at the Montreal courthouse. One of the defendants released is believed to be one of the leaders of the Montreal Mafia, which sounds like a Chicago mob farm team. Uh, the suspects were snared through the interception of communications, many of which appear to originate on BlackBerry phones. As was covered here a year ago, the RCMP used a built-in BlackBerry feature to intercept and decrypt over 1 million messages during its investigation of a mafia killing. Here's the key part of the interception effort. The RCMP maintains a server in Ottawa that simulates a mobile device that receives a message intended for the rightful recipient. In an affidavit, RCMP Sergeant Patrick Bossimu states that the server performs the decryption of the message using the appropriate decryption key. The RCMP calls this the BlackBerry Interception and Processing System. This is part of the reason the Mafia defendants are seeking their having their charges dropped. The RCMP does not want to publicly discuss its BlackBerry interception methods. The other reason has to do with how the RCMP tracked down the phone numbers it wanted to intercept. The RCMP used a mobile device identifier and Stover ordered that the Crown disclose information like the device's signal strength and its potential impact on BlackBerry's ability to make or receive phone calls while text messages are being intercepted from it. This would likely be an RCMP Stingray device. Just like here in the U.S., Canadian law enforcement would rather see perps walk out of the courtroom than turn over information on interception efforts to defendants. This is the largest of the RCMP's catch-and-release efforts, but isn't the first. The National Post points out during a similar dumping of defendants occurred last year for the same reason. The Crown apparently does not want to disclose the investigative techniques used with the device. Last year, it did an about-face 
in a murder trial and six men who are about to go on trial for the first degree murder of mafioso Salvatore Mortagna were able to plead guilty to the lesser charge of conspiracy to commit murder. At least in that case, law enforcement still ended up with a few convictions, albeit on lower charges than what it hoped to obtain going in. Cell tower spoofers are resulting in a lot of contradictory law enforcement behavior. Cops say they don't want to turn over info on stingrays to public record requesters for public safety reasons, claiming it could compromise methods and techniques and allow criminals to stay out of their reach. They make the same claims in court when refusing to turn over information to defendants, which results in freshly caught criminals being put back on the streets, something that certainly doesn't make the public any safer. My, my right, New Canada and your country yes. and my country mm -hmm. to a limited degree this keeps cropping up to keep mm -hmm. their methods safe they're releasing people they know have committed crimes yes judges should be prosecuting should be bringing charges against law enforcement okay i agree for wasting court time police time Taxpayer public money. money yeah yes oh i agree it's ridiculous i agree it's Especially this one. I mean, it's it's a yeah. three-year investigation, and it's just like, yep. uh, no, we're not going to go ahead. Mm -hmm. so, all the money it was spent on that. There's probably a whole team of lawyers were working on it. A whole, yep. definitely a whole team of police. Yes. And probably several judges, not just one. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, uh, no. Yeah, exactly. And it's ridiculous because it, it's, we know a lot about stingrays already. We know more about stingrays than they want to admit. And we know that because we've, you know, The Intercept last year published the working um, documents, not the working documents, but you know what I'm saying, the manual yeah. for a stingray. Now it's an older model stingray. And you've got to understand that what's out there now is probably a hundred times more sophisticated, but we understand how it works. We understand the technology behind it. We're not stupid people, you know, just to admit you used it. I think it's not that they used it. It's that they use it so much that they don't ever want to admit to it. You know, it's such a large part of their investigation investigatory toolkits. Now that they don't ever want to admit to it. And it's a shame because, you know, it's kind of an important thing to know. Yeah. We know that, you know, it can actually stop a 911 phone call. That's kind of dangerous. And, and the public kind of needs to know that, you know. I don't know. It, it seems like it could cause a whole huge host of problems. And it, it seems like 35 mafia members, which is crazy. So I said we'd do two on stingrays, so we're moving right along. Tacoma hit with $50,000 fine plus legal fees over stingray non-disclosure agreement. The city of Tacoma will pay a $50,000 fine as well as legal fees for violating the Public Records Act by withholding most of a non-disclosure agreement it signed to obtain cell phone surveillance equipment, commonly known as a stingray. Center for Open Polling, uh, sorry, Policing, sued the city of blacking the city for blacking out huge portions of the document after the organization requested it in 2012. In an order signed Friday, Pierce County Superior Judge Frank 
Culbertson said the city's redactions violated state law. He ordered Tacoma to pay $100 a day for every day the city wrongfully withheld redacted NDA from June 2014 until November 3rd, 2015, when the city provided this record to plaintiffs, a penalty of 500 days. The penalty is the maximum allowable under state law. The city said the redactions were done at the request of the FBI, which requires law, local law enforcement, to agree to keep the stingray secret as a condition of obtaining one. Judge Culbertson said that this was a paradigm case in which the city favored its interest in maintaining good relations with the FBI at the expense of the public's right to open records under the Government Public Records Act, said Seattle-based attorney David Weedley, who represented the Center for Open Policing and co-founder Phil Moick in the case. The city also has to pay the center's attorney fees, which will be said he hadn't yet calculated. Acting City Attorney Bill Forsby said the city does not plan to seek reimbursement from the federal government. Culberson's order said redacting the NDA was not essential to effective law enforcement in a way that would warrant exemption under state law. The city released the redacted document to the center in September 2014. The News Tribune had revealed the Tacoma County Police Department's use of the stingray a few weeks earlier, a report later confirmed by the city. Thus, any concern of ongoing confidentiality about the TPD's possession of the stingray was moved at the time the city produced the redacted documents to the plaintiffs. Withholding the non-disclosure agreement violated the PRA, according to the order. The stingray is one model of the cell site simulator, which mimics the cell phone tower to tell cell phones to connect with it. Police use the stingrays to track a suspect via his or her cell phone, but it can also gather details of nearby devices, raising privacy concerns. Several other lawsuits filed in connection with Tacoma's use of the Stingray device remain pending. Public records advocate Arthur West filed a lawsuit in October 2015 contesting redactions the city made to the non-disclosure agreement and other documents he requested. West filed another lawsuit in December contending that the police device interferes with cell phone signals without a license from the Federal Communications Commission, a federal agency that regulates the use of the airwaves. Also last year, the American Civil Liberties Union of Washington filed a lawsuit on behalf of four Tacomas, uh, three of them pastors of a predominantly black church, alleging the city had improperly withheld documents and seeking fines. Said it before, and here I say it again. Yeah, the judges are getting pissed off with this now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, now you've just been fucking around too long, and you're going to start paying for it, which is not really a bad thing. People should be paying for that, you know. This should not be cool. It should not be allowed. It should not be legal. There is absolutely no reason for this to be allowed to go on. We know it exists. We know a lot more about it than they pretend we do. And we've seen the documents completely unredacted before. So what is the big fucking deal now? The the big deal is police now seem to have forgotten procedural policing you you know the the thing that revolutionized police forces around the world and made them work efficiently they they don't seem to believe that in that anymore no i mean it just seems to be uh we can do what we like because we're the police yeah uh so last night (laughs) for some reason i watched robocop again (laughs) The, the original one or the new one Oh, the original one. Yeah, the original one. Yeah. 
there was there is something about RoboCop, and uh, I'm assuming it's because of is that even in the document? I don't think it. I don't think I put it in there, and I probably should have because of Connecticut. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this is you fun. have thirty <laughs> seconds to comply. Yeah. Yeah, Connecticut lawmakers vote to give police drones with guns from the Death From Above 2017 department. This is, by the way, this is tech dart. I love tech dart. Thank you for making things so easy to explain to people. Connecticut's legislature has backed, managed to back into legalizing law enforcement use of weaponized drones. In writing a new drone law, lawmakers banned the use of weaponized drones, but made an exception for police. It's not a case of, hey, let's give the cops weaponized drones as much as it's a case of not wanting law enforcement to be unable to have the option. As for how police will or won't be able to deploy weaponized drones, that's still up in the air. Details on how law enforcement could use drones with weapons would be spelled out in new roles to be developed by the State Police Officer Standards and Training Council. Officers also would have to receive training before being allowed to use drones with weapons. All well and good, but police officers also receive training in things like civil liberties and proper force deployment, and we see daily how much good that's done. The more encouraging parts of the bill, ones that would see Connecticut join North Dakota in police use of weaponized drones, are the reporting requirements and warrant stipulation. It would require police to get a warrant before using a drone, unless there are emergency circumstances, or the person who is the subject of drone use gives permission. It would also require police to report yearly on how often they use drones and why and create new crimes and penalties for criminal use of drones, including voyeurism. Fortunately, Connecticut's bill isn't as limited as North Dakota's. North Dakota's forbids the use of lethal weapons, but it's easy to see some less than lethal rounds becoming much more lethal when fired from a few hundred feet in the air. The bill would allow lethal force to be deployed from police drones. One lawmaker sees a pretty rosy future for airborne police weaponry. Obviously, this is for very limited circumstances. A Republican state senator, John Kessel of Einfeld, co-chairman of the Judiciary Committee that approved the measure Wednesday and sent it to the House of Representatives. We can certainly envision some incident on some campus, some place or somewhere someone is a rogue shooter or someone was kidnapped and you try to blow out a tire problem with tools like this is they tend to lend themselves to mission creep and abuse. And certainly no law enforcement agency wants to take home the record for first civilian killed by drone, but once the seal's broken, lethal force becomes easier and easier to deploy. And it's not as though this is a necessary step to take. Law enforcement often complains about being left behind in the tech race, but it's not as though criminals are taking to the air and endangering citizens with weaponized drones. This will put the police ahead of everybody else move them one step closer to being a military force. And there's no warrant in existence that grants police the license to kill, only apprehend. But that might be good enough for airborne drug warriors, etc., who believe many criminal acts are punishable by death, should the suspect be unwilling to immediately surrender himself into custody. We've seen plenty of senseless death and destruction stemming from the overuse of vehicle pursuits. This is the next step. Flying guns, shooting at suspects as they flee through civilian traffic. Law enforcement officers aren't great shots with both feet planted on the ground. Giving them a gun in the air is a bad idea. And, you know, I'm pro-Second Amendment. 
And this is the worst idea I've seen in a long time. Just saying. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, police get armed drones. What happens next? Criminals steal the police's armed drones. <laughs> I mean, it's not just me. This is a terrible idea. I mean, yeah. when you talk about bad ideas, giving police armed use of a drone is a bad idea. Armed drones. I mean, you said it yourself. It's kind of like Robocop. Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm aware, well, it, the the type of drone being discussed is the quadcoptery type thing. Right. Not I think so. Predators. Um, yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they cost a bit of money. Uh, even mm -hmm. even the big, big police forces in the US would struggle with the full-size drones. Sure. Uh, it's not going to be able to carry an effective enough weapon anyway. They don't have a big payload. A derringer, maybe. <laughs> um, so what I could see them doing is basically having tear gas ejectors or something like that. And that's going to be disastrous. I think what would be even worse is, you know, taser guns with darts. Uh, well, that... yeah, I'd, I'd love to see them testing a taser, because that would be hilarious. Now, we have a drone. We've used a taser. We have now tethered the drone to the target. To the, to the suspect who's flopping around on the ground. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah exactly. Oh dear, we just crashed our drone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our, our suspect uh, assaulted the drone <laughs> by flopping around like a fish. Um, but this is all crazy because what they make legal now that they might not have the technology for now, when they have the technology for it later, it becomes scary as fuck. Yeah. I, I think that's just basically a general rule. Um, people don't pay attention to science fiction. Science fiction is a warning. <laughs> You know, uh, oh, it's and the, the, the non-lethal weapons, right? So that will include rubber bullets. Yeah. And yeah, as mentioned in the report, yeah, those do become lethal when you fire them from above. Yeah. Because okay. then they'll be... Uh, they won't be ricocheting around no. horizontally. Be they'll be coming in high angle and no. yeah, a rubber bullet can shatter your skull. If it hits at the right angle, so it's happened. Yeah. With normally horizontally fired rubber bullets, mm -hmm. let alone firing yeah. them from the sky. I uh, mean, we've seen suspects have their cheekbones completely shattered by that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, shoot yeah. down on people with it. Yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just me. I mean, this is. That's why. That's why the police in the UK don't use rubber bullets anymore. Yeah, they, you guys fire, what, beanbags? Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's got to fucking hurt, especially at the velocity they're being fired at people. Yeah, UK, they're not even allowed to use water cannon. <laughs> well, they shouldn't be. We saw what happened when they used them here, when they were protesting the, you know, the wonderful, suddenly okay to go and drill sites yeah. where we're running our fucking pipeline. Yeah, the, the um, funny thing about the water cannons was Boris Johnson. Nobody had told him. And when he was mayor of London, he 
ordered riot vehicles with water cannon, <laughs> which he then couldn't use. <laughs> so he's like, they're not legal to use in the UK. He's like, oh. <laughs> Does anyone well, want three riot vehicles with high-power water cannons? <laughs> and I believe they ended up in Northern Ireland. Um, but... Yeah, the place that has its own civil liberties challenges. Who probably also won't use them because they're much more peaceful than they used to be. Um, well, yeah, and it's funny what happens when you stop fucking bombing each other. Um, anything jumping out at you from the document at all? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I don't know what happened this time. Normally I have a, a title. You, you can keep it on the, the robots side. thing and. So go with the 30,000 right. of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Robot mob. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is kind of interesting. Uh, GM hooking 30,000 robots to internet to keep factories humming because, you know, Robocop is not scary enough. <laughs> and we never have a problem with the internet of things. And the more shit you have connected to the internet, the safer you are. Right? Am I right? I'm right. Skynet. Yeah, I'm kidding. Oh, shit, exactly. Uh, General Motors Company has connected about a quarter of its 30,000 factory robots to the internet, and the largest U.S. automaker is already reaping the benefits of less downtime. In the last two years, GM has avoided 100 potential failures of vehicle assembly robots by analyzing the data they sent to external servers in the cloud. Mark Francis, director of global automation, said at a conference in Chicago on Monday, Connectivity is preventing the assembly line interruptions and robot replacements that can take as long as eight hours. If we can avoid disruption in our manufacturing, we can continue to save ourselves a significant amount of money, Frank said, at an International Federation of Robotics Roundtable. Pretty good payback. Auto companies were pioneers in adopting automation and continue to be the robotics industry's largest customer. In 2016, automotive factories installed 1,000, no, sorry, 17,600 robots compared with the 5,100 for electronics manufacturers and 1,900 for metal producers, according to the Federation. Internet monitoring allows GM to order parts when it detects they're wearing out instead of having to store them at the factory. That reduces inventory and saves money, Frank said. GM has increased its new U.S. robot applications by 10,000 since 2012, while boosting U.S. employment by almost a third to 105,000, according to a report by the Association for Advancing Automation that argues robots help create jobs. <laughs> Sorry. Hooking robots to the internet for preventative maintenance is just the start of a spur of new robotics technology, Frank said. GM is using robots that can work safely alongside humans in the factory that produces the Chevrolet Volt plug-in hybrid, he said. The amount of technology coming in the next five years is probably more than we've seen in the last 50, Frank said. Oh, well, gee, what a happy day. Th this story makes, makes me laugh quite a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of it that makes me laugh. I, I had to, I was trying not to laugh while I was reading it. Right, so one, GM has now openly declared it's about 15 years behind the rest of the automotive industry. Because right. the Japanese and Germans have been using automation for that long, long robots. Mm -hmm. right. Close to 20 years, in fact. But they don't have them hooked up directly to the internet. They have servers in their factories that monitor mm -hmm. the robots. Mm -hmm. 
And then a human who works at the server station mm-hmm. monitors the robots and orders parts as needed and etc. Completely automating it. Yeah, the Japanese and Germans haven't done that because they're not stupid. And that's the other laughable thing here. You don't completely automate a system. Uh, well, you don't. I don't. Anyone GM with any brain does. does. It doesn't, yeah. I mean, okay. Well, there's a reason why we call them government motors in this country, yeah. And it's not just because they get a bailout, it's because they're not exactly geniuses. But the one that makes me laugh, uh, anyway, is when Merkel was talking to Trump, Mm -hmm. she quite plainly mentioned that the largest American car exporter is Mercedes. Because they have one, one of their giant automated factories in the US, mm-hmm. making cars. Yeah. And it's yeah. a, a lot of them end up in Asia and India. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and Canada. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. yeah, they're all full of robots, but lots of mm-hmm. people as well. Um, <laughs> it's a, but, yeah, GM it's just... playing catch-up with the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah well, I mean... How much government worse... bailout money did they get? <laughs> Yeah, a lot. A fucking lot. How much, did, up. How much did Mercedes get? Oh, yeah, they didn't need any because they overstretched their f- idiot. Fucking... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's weird. So I'm picking the next story, and, and it's going to be about Brookbot. <laughs> which it seems perfect. I couldn't have picked these stories any better. If I tried, <laughs> it's almost like I laid them out in this fashion to go on with them, which I, which I didn't. They were just, as I can verify the information, and they go into the dock. Brick or bot bricks your smart devices. So, your smart devices would be things that you have connected to the internet. You know, your toaster, your oven, your fridge, or if you're GM, your fucking robots that build your goddamn cars. Uh, okay, so new malware intentionally breaks IoT devices. A new malware strain called Brickerbot is bricking Internet of Things devices around the world by corrupting their storage capability and reconfiguring kernel parameters. Detected via honeypot servers maintained by cybersecurity firm Redware, the first attack started on March 20 and considered ever and continued ever since targeting only Linux BusyBot based IoT devices. Well, BusyBot, um, you know what's funny about BusyBot? BusyBot is one of the main engines in a couple of the, the consumer drones you can buy. And yeah, they haven't been updated in a while. I'm just yeah, throwing busy, that out there. BusyBox shit <laughs> is, would be yeah. the brief description. Yeah. So it's, it's in drones, right? I, I don't know that it's in GM stuff, but you know, uh, whatever. Okay. Um, <sighs> right from the get-go, two different versions of BrickerBot were detected. BrickerBot 1 and BrickerBot 2. BrickerBot spreads to devices with open Telnet ports. I can't believe anybody uses open Telnet. I mean, Telnet is total shit. Just throwing that out there. In the first stages of the attacks, both strains work in a similar way. By attempting a dictionary brute force attack on devices with Telnet ports left open on the internet, 
Just like Mari, Hajain, Luabot, and other IoT malware, Perkabot uses a list of known default credentials used for various IoT devices. If device owners fail to change their default credentials, Brickabot logs in and performs a series of Linux commands. Brickabot bricks your smart devices. This is where the two divisions differentiate as each version set of commands is different, but in the end will accomplish the same goal. These commands will write random bits to the device's storage devices, rendering flash storage useless. Disable TCB timestamps. Internet activity, connectivity is left intact but hampered. Sets the maximum number of kernel threads to one. Since this value is usually in the range of tens of thousands, it effectively stops all kernel operations. Reboots the device. The end result is a bricked IoT device that will stop working within seconds of getting infected. Experts call these attacks PDOS, permanent denial of service, but they are also known as flashing. According to telemetry data, one of Radware's honeypots has seen 1,895 PDOS attempts in the span of four days. The company experts say the two BrickerBot variants are distributed by two different infrastructures. Currently, attacks with BrickerBot 1 are being launched from IPs all over the world, which appear to be assigned to ubiquity network devices such as access points and bridges, which all run an older version of the DropBear SSH server. Attacks from BrickerBot 2, the more advanced version of the BrickerBot malware family, and the one that executes more commands are hidden behind Tor exit nodes. Again, don't fucking use Tor. And are almost impossible to trace back to their origin. The good news is that this more advanced version was only responsible for 333 PDOS attacks, far less than the ones with BrickerBot 1. BrickerBot, the work of a vigilante, all in all, BrickerBot isn't like anything we've seen before in the landscape of IoT malware. Most IoT malware strains try to hoard devices in massive botnets that are then used as proxies to relay malicious traffic or to launch DDoS attacks. Both of these are lucrative business for any cyber criminal talented enough to hijack large numbers of IoT equipment. BrickerBot's destructive capabilities are something new, which don't benefit anyone. Not BrickerBot's author, and certainly not the device owner, will have to reinstall firmware or even worse, buy a new device. BrickerBot can also be the work of an internet vigilante that wants to destroy and secure IoT devices. A similar malware strain first appeared in October 2015 called Linux Wi-Fi Watch. I, we talked about this last year. This IoT malware strain took over insecure routers and then executed commands that improved the device's security. The creators of this malware open sourced the code on GitLab, also explaining the reasons why they created the malware to begin with, claiming they had no bad intentions. BrickerBot is bent on destroying IoT devices. The same cannot be said for BrickerBot's author, who clearly is intent on wiping as much of the insecured IoT devices as he can. Wow, that's pretty nasty, said Cyber Reason security researcher Amit Spur after bleeping computers showed him Radware security alert. They're just breaking it for the sake of breaking it. They're deliberately destroying the device. It's as if someone wanted to clean up the mess in a harsh way, said Victor Gravers, chairman of GDI Foundation, a security expert that tracked the destructive ransom attacks against MongoDB servers that took place at the start of the year. Very effective, and in some point, very risky, because attacking devices without knowing their exact duty could be dangerous, Gravers said. Imagine you disable a security camera in an embassy. Is that an act of aggression towards a country? 
proposition for a better approach to insecure IoT devices. Berkerbot's approach is definitely illegal and dangerous, as Griffiths points out. The researcher also doesn't agree with the attacker's approach. These attacks are very easy to execute, and I think this is just the beginning, the expert told Leaping Computer. I don't want to label this work as dark, but I think there are less destructive ways to achieve the same goal. Instead of breaking, you could also allow the devices to still work and just patch the vulnerability. This requires a bit more finesse. So Grivers is making a proposition for the BrickerBot authors. As chairman of the GVI Foundation, I would like to thank the ones behind this. Your message of awareness was received loud and clear. I would appreciate it if they approached us so we might work together, getting the rest of the insecure IoT devices offline as well, but a little bit more constructively. Griffith's proposition is in line with his foundation's work, which has been spending countless man hours trying to alert companies about unsecured servers left exposed online. The Redware security alert containing the details of BrickerBot's modus operandi is available here. So, just in case anybody's interested, and huh, there you go. Uh, Stello, since like you're the only one here, that's for you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, what can you say? Uh, yeah, there's not much you can say. No, you apart know? from, I, yet like... again, all these people who are so pro-Linux. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, it's much better than Windows. Oh, yeah, no, it's not. You know, they, they all suck. You know yes. what I mean? They all have vulnerabilities. They all suck. Generally speaking... This is not going to happen to one of your Windows connected devices. No. Well, it can't because it, it relies yeah. on accessing yeah, exactly. kernels, which only exist on Linux based devices, which yeah. includes Apple, by the way, uh, huh. for people who've forgotten. Um, <laughs> Apple, Apple OS, iOS is Linux. Yeah. Shh. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> it's just, it's. It's not just me. This shit is ridiculous. It's almost like whoever wrote this program is like, I am so sick of telling people not to leave their devices so insecure. Ah, fuck it. And they just ran with it. You yeah. know? Well, yeah, as it yeah. happens, yeah. I mean, this this should only affect devices that haven't had their uh, credentials changed. However... It's not to say the guy who wrote this isn't writing something more advanced. I mean, he's already got yeah. two versions of this. Yep. But, you know, who knows? I, I mean, mean if it spreads, if, if it gets more, if it gets more clever in the way it operates, it could end up mm -hmm. infecting smartphones, which will be really bad. Yeah, that, that would be really fucking disastrous. But, um... There's a reason why we talk about the danger of IoT devices all the time. Are we are we a tech podcast now, guys? No. Can't even tell anymore. Um, but the reason we talk about the dangers of IoT connectivity is because of shit like this. And actually, this is one of the more benign fucking things that can happen. Yeah, all you. this does is make you need to buy another device. It doesn't uh -huh. fuck up your life. Uh. <laughs> Honestly, this is one of the nicer things they could have done. Seriously. Cost you a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars, but, you know, wise you up to not leaving your shit open and insecure? I don't know. Seems like a valuable lesson. 
That's that's why people change all their information when they get a device. There's a reason for that. You know, there's there's a reason for that. And security should mean something to people. But uh, yeah, I'm going I'm, so I'm going to mention the big one again. When you get a new router, make mm-hmm. sure you change the admin password. Mm-hmm. If it has yeah. remote access, make remote sure it. make sure you disable it if it's your own device, yeah. or if it has been supplied by your ISP. Well, yeah, it's down to them to keep it secure, but well, keep an well, eye on that's, it. That's that's why you buy your own router. So yeah. Fuck it. That's why you buy your own fucking router. Well, I mean, uh, I have my ISP's router, but that's because I'm in the UK and we have laws. Um, (laughs) Well, it doesn't matter what laws we have here, you know. Someone will get a brilliant idea and someone else will help them just fucking, you know, any protections you have, just abort them. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably going to get around to buying my own router at some point, but the ones I um, fancy cost an awful lot of money. Uh. I like my router. I, I like my router. My router has a name that's so freaking it. Everything in it, the passwords are so ridiculous. I mean, it, it would take a while to guess them. I think, pretty sure. Uh, so yeah, there is that. I like this one uh, about the smart one app. Yeah. I like this for reasons that are. I think I've talked about this. I, I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts while I'm working. I work very early in the morning and I'm, you know, mostly on my own. So I'm perfectly happy to listen to podcasts a while away at the time. So, you know, I listen to like King Falls AM. I listen to Tannis. I listen to the Black Tapes. I listen to Rabbits, which is really interesting. It's about an all in person, in all universe, you know, game. which is pretty interesting all the podcasts i like are are pretty good um scotch was a good podcast i listen to a lot of fictional stuff but i also listen to a podcast called clandestine um which is pretty good it's about spies and it's about the cia and the fbi um the deep state and the american surveillance apparatus that we have in this country and how embedded it is in the government and its influence over our lives. Um, so I found this story irresistible and I had to talk about it because like I said, I, I like spy stuff. Obviously it's an interest of mine I, or I wouldn't be talking about privacy and security if I weren't interested in spy stuff. Okay. Um, American spies now have their very own smartphone app. Isn't that great? Look how far we've come. Look how far you've come, America. Your spies have their own freaking smartphone app. Doesn't get any better than that. Chris Marismusen is an evangelist, and his message is crowdsourcing. As a career analyst inside the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Rasmussen's sermons have been limited to a closed top security community, top secret community. But this week, he's going public with his most radical idea to date, in the form of a smartphone app for senior U.S. intelligence officers. Called Tierline, the app is a wiki-style collaborative platform for reading and writing unclassified intelligence reports, complete with charts, comments, and updates. There are versions for mobile and desktop, Apple and Android alike, 
anyone can download them, but without a vetted government credential, you won't be able to log in. Think of it like banking. You can download the app for a bank you don't use, but it won't do you any good. The Silicon Valley design firm IDEO helps with the look. And now that it's finally available, Rasmussen and his team of iconoclasts can do nothing but hope that in the coming days, spies accustomed to extreme security secretly download it, log in, and see the light, keeping it unclassified. For more than a decade, Rasmussen has driven to streamline the way spies at all U.S. agencies write official intelligence reports. He was instrumental in the creation and adoption of Intellipedia, the Wikipedia for spies, now an intelligence community mainstay. Um, so let me grab you the story about that because you probably won't be able to get in there either, but it's still interesting to just look at. So there's that. Um, okay. He later developed a program called Living Intelligence, which he hoped would let spies collaborate on writing national intelligence estimates. It proved too radical a leap to find traction. By separating out the unclassified from the classified and intel briefings tier line, provides something entirely new. For a long time, the distinction didn't much matter since all the raw data that analysts used to build intelligence reports came from in-house and was itself classified. Now intel can come from all sorts of private and public places, Twitter, Google Maps, you name it. Think, for example, of private satellites that can gather data similar to what the NGA does. Rasmussen took what he learned from the successes and failures of Intellipedia and living intel and in 2015 converted to an interagency team he called Pathfinder to answer two simple questions. Is it possible to crowdsource just the unclassified parts of intelligence reports? And if so, would people actually use it? Caroline answers the first question. The second should prove harder. This could be a bomb. They could just not download it. They could stay in the SCIF, says Rasmussen, referring to the sensitive compartmentalized information facilities in which senior officials read classified reports. If the intelligence community does embrace tier line, though, some much-needed innovation will finally connect the government's most secret corridors with technology from the open internet. The coffee strategy. Just like you might start your day reading the news over a cup of joe, so do spies. But while you might also review notes for that morning's big work presentation, spies can't. They can only access their work from secure facilities. That makes no sense. I mean, that makes sense. No one wants top secret government information to fall into the wrong hands, but it's also limiting, since much of what the intelligence community gathers and shares isn't actually top secret at all. Any given intelligence report will be roughly 20% classified info, the spooky stuff, Rasmussen calls it, an 80% unclassified context background that someone reading about the spooky stuff needs to know to understand why the hell it matters. That's called the tier line, a uh, diplomatic jargon for folding the report right before the sensitive stuff. Above the tier line would be the classified version, Rasmussen explains. That 80% unclassified info currently lives only in the classified intranet inside the intelligence agencies and when printed out can only be looked at in secure facilities. Even if it's on Intellipedia, the lowest level of classification, senior intelligence officials can't access it outside of the network. So they can't read it at home while drinking coffee or helping to get the kids off to school. And since there's no system for writing it separately from classified parts, they can't jot down ideas from home when inspiration strikes. This leads to long hours at the office working on things that, with the right tools, could really be done from home. I was briefing this very, very senior official at the Pentagon, and he was like, I wake up at 5 a.m. and I get the presidential daily brief at 9 a.m. If you can give me 80% of the story unclassified before I even walk into the secure facility, that would be awesome, as Mewson said. But that's the goal. The freedom of the open web. 
Rasmussen ran Pathfinder within the NGA, but with buy-in from most intelligence agencies, the Army, Marine Corps, and the Commonwealth Agencies, Great Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the five highest, which they're a member of. Approximately 30 agents from different agencies became full-time members of the Pathfinder team. The agency's international collaboration required tools that are verboten in the classified system. The chat application Slack, Google Hangouts and Skype, and whatever else they wanted. Before, they couldn't have their phones at their desk. During Pathfinder, they could text with their spouses about school pickups as they researched the population of a Chinese ghost city for a tier line report. It was a complete departure from what they were used to, and they loved every second of it. Often, when you're in our line of work, you have to make this decision about whether you're going to stay at work and miss whatever's going on in your life, says NGA analyst Chris Henry. As a pathfinder, Henry didn't have to make that choice. He could take his kids to a soccer practice and come back for a Google Hangout meeting with other pathfinders. He found himself better able to focus on work without the distraction of being in an office. The pathfinder team developed a system for running purely unclassified reports from the ground up, which incorporated most of the workflow that Rasmussen had developed with Living Intelligence. The key was designing reports in the app, organized by topic, to be so easy to update that they always showed the accurate current assessment. IDEO's main task was making the app user-friendly as possible. Every tier line report begins with a one or two sentence overview of the analysis, followed by a longer text block. Each section in the app has guidance for how to write a successful report. There's also a tier line of changes, an area for asking questions, pointing ahead, and of course, setting sources. The Pathfinders spent most of their time running reports so that when the tier line went live, it was already providing value. Now the test is over. Tier line is live, and the Pathfinder team has disbanded and gone back to their normal jobs. A transition Henry describes as tough. Now the real test begins. When senior officials download tier line this week, they'll be able to read reports that Pathfinder wrote for them, including the one on ghost cities. But without a dedicated team writing these reports full line, full-time, Terline will only succeed if the officials who download it contribute to new reports themselves and update those old ones. If there's not 10 new stories in the next 90 days, the apps are going to die, Rasmussen said. Now that Terline is out in the world, it's all out of their hands. I believe this time we can get it right, Rasmussen says. One app downloaded at a time. My first thought when, when I saw this was, yeah, I bet it's got a version of Frogger or something on it. <laughs> Say what? A version of Frogger or something. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Tetris, that maybe. Is, that man is playing Gattaca. Yeah. He thought we wouldn't notice, but we did. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's no surprise. Yeah, Rosmussen's a character. He crops up now and again. <laughs> yeah. But Tell me about him. He's, he's one of these... He's. They they use him because he's an alternative thinker, right? Um, and he's very clever. Uh, but of course, <laughs> he's fighting against the brick wall of ignorance that is old-fashioned spy work. Um, well, I mean, you know, if eighty percent of classified reports or unclassified bullshit that you and I come across on Twitter or something, I don't understand why knowing that stuff ahead of time would be a bad thing. I mean, I don't know. Just the happier you are, the less life your job costs you, the happier you're going to be as a human being and the more productive you're going to be. 
the more life yeah, it I mean, costs you, the more miserable you're going to be, and, and the less effective you're going to be. All governments uh, in the West keep going on about cutting government costs and all that kind of nonsense, mm -hmm. and come up with weird and wonderful plans for doing so. Here's an opportunity to do something. It'll, mm -hmm. as you say, improve productivity. Yeah. But I bet it, it fails. <laughs> it's a shame because, I mean, it really has... I mean, I saw that and I was, like, horrified, but then I was like, well, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, every... If you go to, just for instance, if you go to Reddit and you were to look up my company, there's there's a Reddit space there for my company where, you know, people just discuss the frustrations of their job or, or how hard it is. And there are people you've maybe never even met. But knowing that somebody understands that is amazing. Um it's great to have a sounding board and it's neat to share stuff with each other. And spies don't really have that. They're never really going to have that, but they can be better prepared to do their intelligence work, go in, get it done, get it nailed and be with their families, which has got to be like the only rewarding relationships they really have. Not one, the only, one, you know what I'm saying? I, I now have this image of, Trump's secretary using this app. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Because he loves his apps, after all. Uh, yeah. And and his assistant is never without his phone. Uh, God, can you imagine Sean Spicer out there with that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that guy looks like he's going to have a nervous breakdown any day now. He just looks less and less well every time he speaks. That's because the I, dichotomy I, of what his mouth is saying with what he knows <laughs> is true in his brain is slowly destroying his nervous system. So what you're saying is double think is hard? Yeah. Humans can't <laughs> do it. Yeah. Despite what people loves... think, we can't multitask. Humans do not multitask. Our brains don't end, work that way. In the end, he loved Big Brother. I'm sorry, I had to go there. Since, since I bought up doublespeak, um, I don't know that there's actually much else in the document, which is weird. Like, we just sit for a long time. Yeah. Uh, oh, um, I did actually say I was going to talk about ALPR, yeah. which is good. This comes from the EFF. And this is called the Four Flavors of Automatic License Plate Reader Technology. I love the EFF. I mean, despite my misgivings about the things that they have done with Tor, and I, I can't help it. I love them. And most of the work they do is very, very valuable. I appreciate them for every little bit of it. Automated license plate readers may be the most common mass surveillance technology in use by local law enforcement and around the country, but they're not always used in the same way. Typically, ALPR systems are comprised of high-speed cameras connected to computers that photograph every license plate that passes. The photo is converted to letters and numbers, which are attached to a time and location stamp, then uploaded to a central server. This allows police to identify and record locations of vehicles in real time, and also identify where those vehicles have been in the past. Using this information, police could establish driving patterns for individual cars. The type of data ALPRs collect, analyze, and access often depends on what kind of systems they use and how they combine the data. 
Whether you're a policymaker, journalist, or citizen watchdog, it is important to note the specifics about how these technologies are used. Stationary ALPR cameras, and we've all seen those. Many law enforcement agencies install ALPR cameras in a fixed location, such as a permanently affixed camera to traffic lights, telephone poles, or the entrances of facilities. The city of Paradise Valley, Arizona, even disguises ALPRs as cacti, when we talked about that last year. Often a city or county will attach these two freeway exit ramps to capture the plates of every vehicle entering or leaving. With stationary cameras, law enforcement are able to capture only vehicles passing through that specific location. If cameras are pointed opposite each other, it can be repositioned remotely. Law enforcement can know which direction a driver is traveling. Semi-stationary ALPR cameras. Some law enforcement agencies acquire truck trailers or special surveillance vans outfitted with ALPR systems that they will tow and place at strategic locations. When parked, they function much like stationary cameras, capturing the place of moving vehicles that pass within view. For example, law enforcement agencies have placed these vehicles at fairgrounds during high traffic events like gun shows and political rallies to capture information on attendees and to screen them against existing databases. The big difference is that semi-stationary ALPR cameras can be easily moved to different locations as police feel their surveillance needs change. Mobile ALPR cameras. Police patrol cars can also be fitted with ALPR cameras, allowing law enforcement officers to capture and screen plates as they drive along the normal beat or from crime scene to crime scene. Mobile ALPR cameras are also more effective at capturing the license plates of parked cars than stationary and semi-stationary cameras. With mobile ALPRs, officers can drive around a mall parking lot and pick up the plates of everyone shopping at that moment. Of more concern to civil libertarians is the ability for law enforcement to target sensitive places such as centers of religious worship, health facilities, immigration clinics, union halls, political headquarters, and gun shops. Only two patrol cars in Oakland, for example, were able to cover most of the city in a week driving around with a disproportionate amount of coverage in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. ALPR databases. A law enforcement agency does not even need to require its own ALPR cameras to access ALPR data. Private companies such as Vigilant Solutions We've talked about them before as well. Deploy their own fleet of vehicles equipped with ALPR cameras. The companies then make this data available to law enforcement on a subscription basis. Unlike the other three types of ALPR cameras, this private collection does not include many of the safeguards sometimes found in the government sector, such as transparency requirements, retention limits, and policies approved by an elected body. These four configurations aren't the end of the story. Overlapping technologies. It is not unusual for a law enforcement agency to deploy a fleet of multiple flavors of ALPRs, such as a combination of mobile and stationary. A large number of agencies that use ALPR also feed data into privately hosted data systems, such as those offered by Vigilant Solutions. This allows agencies to share with one another, but also to draw information collected by the private company itself. Many agencies also share data through a central government system, such as those operated by fusion centers. Hotless. One common practice is for law enforcement to create targeted hotless vehicles, such as plate numbers of stolen cars or suspects um, being involved in crimes or gang activity. In some cases, especially in Texas, law enforcement will create a list of individuals with overdue court fees. That way, police receive real-time updates when particular vehicles are spotted by an ALPR camera. Related technology. While the above 
illustrates the four main ways ALPR is used by police, it is important to recognize some of the adjacent technologies. For example, red light cameras and automated speed traps often use ALPR technology. However, they are usually designed to collect data on suspended violations, not the public at large. Toll roads and bridges also deploy ALPR technologies to make it more convenient to send bills to drivers. In addition, agencies are combining biometric technology with ALPR, such as facial recognition, or the ability to determine whether someone in the carpooling actually has a passenger. Cities are also installing motion sensor cameras that capture plates but do not digitize them, allowing law enforcement to go back and search only after a crime has occurred. However, it is not difficult to apply software to extract license plate data from the images after the fact. The devil is in the details. When policymakers are considering whether to adapt ALPR technology, it's not a simple yes or no question. Constituents must pressure their representatives on the specifics. Will these cameras be mobile or stationary? And does the purchase include access to third-party databases? Policies should specify how long data will be retained, outside the agency can access the data, and the specific circumstances that allow an officer to search the data or add a vehicle to a hot list. No police chief or elected official should sign off on ALPR purchases without first answering these questions and balancing them against the constituent's right to privacy. ALPR tech poses a unique threat to privacy because it collects information on everyone, not just those connected to crimes. These systems wouldn't work at all if the government did not require drivers to post identifying numbers in public view. But unlike an officer writing down plate numbers by hand, the collection storage on a massive automated scale can reveal intimate details about travel patterns that should be none of the government's business. There's a lot of things that should be none of the government's business, and yet, here we are. Well, yeah, we're here again, right? So I'm in the UK. We Where you have, have laws. I know, yeah, you have ALPRs laws. ALPRs everywhere, but they're not allowed to store data on people driving habits and all that kind of stuff. Right. The central database is called the DVLA. It's the same. It's it's the people who give you your driving license and keep a record right. of what cars you have. Mm -hmm. So when a police car goes along the street, because all our police cars have ALPR, all of them, when they're going along and a vehicle that's been reported as stolen when that number plate comes up the police instantly know and they can flag down that car, chase it whatever, and deal with it and that's yeah. how we use LPR over here. It is as a crime prevention tool mm -hmm. it's not to follow somebody's habits, learn stuff it's only if you've already if that vehicle is already suspect that's the only reason it gets flagged up by the ALPR and the police cars. Um, right. They can use them for tracking a suspect, but they need a warrant for it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is usually pretty intense. I mean, yet again, if you watch police shows, the British right. ones are hilarious. And you're like, mm -hmm. you know how surveilled mm -hmm. we are here. Right. And, you know, there's a car chase and they lose them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You think, how the hell did that happen? They must yeah. have passed an ALPR, because, yeah, ALPR is how our tra most of our traffic cameras work in the speed cameras, because uh, uh -huh. obviously they take, they take a picture of the plate when they take a photograph. Um, but they're not all, yeah, it's not a live tracking system. So, right. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And 
while most of the cameras, the stationary ones in the UK, are, I mean, I think I've said this to you before, most of the stationary ones are run by a private company, mm-hmm. but under police supervision. They're just not allowed to accumulate data of mm-hmm. their own, unlike Vigilant over your way. Yeah. Uh, they're only allowed to use it so mm-hmm. that the police can use it. <laughs> right. Basically, it's outsourcing right. some of the work from the police, basically. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. But yet again, yeah, well, you're, you're, you guys over there are a bit behind. Uh, yeah, Europe's well. dealt with all this years ago. Yeah, but you were proactive about it. I mean, look, right now, we're still begging the NSA to tell us how many Americans are being surveilled. Yeah. Still begging. We still got Ron Wyden writing another fucking letter to the NSA asking how many people are getting caught up in Section 702 blanket surveillance, you know, and asking for a number, and, you know, nothing's happening with it. I mean, and this isn't normal. For us here, because we just, I don't want to say we pass the buck, but we just don't deal with everything. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. But, I mean, it all ties in. I mean, the reason why the UK and most of Europe is so different is because of Data Protection Act. Mm -hmm. Which only one of your states has even sort of brought in as far as I'm aware which is you know uh, yes the police and government are allowed to keep data on you but you're allowed to look at it and if there Mm -hmm. are if there's incorrect incorrect data you can insist it gets changed stuff like that that's data protection ALPR cameras and everything else is all covered by data protection Um, so yeah because, yeah, I mean, and it works. That's the good thing. If it's done properly, it works. In the UK, say you watch one of these police shows, the, you'll mm-hmm. see the guy, the policeman in his car, he's driving along. Oh, the, this uh, car in front, it's it's coming up as mm-hmm. it's got no insurance. Yeah. So they pull it over, because you're not supposed to drive without insurance. Mm-hmm. And half the time it ends up being a drug bust or something else happens. Because, mm. yeah, people of a criminal nature, <laughs> criminal you know, thing. forget yeah. things like paying for their insurance and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the police over here love it. But yeah. Yeah. because it's useful, they deliberately don't overstep the usage. Whereas your guys seem to come at it from the other direction. <laughs> they want to overstep it straight away. Yeah. It's it's very weird. It's very strange. I, I don't know. Um, I think I had one more in the Google or two actually. And they're very they're very legal esque. They're very lawyerly. Um, and that's because we're talking about uh, amendments to the constitution. Uh, I actually had somebody suggest to me that, like, I pick an amendment every week and talk about it. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't think 
I, I don't think I'm the person to do that, but I can see where that would be compelling. That's why we talked about the Fourth Amendment so much. This one's about the, four, the First Amendment, and I'm not, I'm not in love with this. But um, once again, you know, the quote about defending scoundrels <laughs> seems to come into play because again. Uh, they're the people who get their rights violated first. And if you don't stop it with them, it's not going to stop when it comes to you. It's an ugly sort of circus kind of atmosphere here. Uh, the Supreme Court seems unhappy with the social media ban for sex offenders. The justices are likely to strike down a law that clashes with freedom of speech. The rape and murder of seven-year-old Megan Kana in 1994 inspired a host of federal and state laws tracking sexual predators and publicizing information on their crimes and whereabouts. Many states also passed laws keeping with such criminals away from schools, playgrounds, and parks. In 2008, in an attempt to expand the zone of protection into the virtual world, North Carolina barred registered sex offenders from accessing social networking sites where monitors are known to have accounts. It seems the Tar Heel State may have overreached. The law did not receive a welcome greeting at the Supreme Court on February 27th, when the justices heard Packingham v. North Carolina, a case asking whether sex offenders off wide swaths of the internet jives with the First Amendment's free speech guarantee. In 20, 2002, Lester Packingham, then 21, was convicted of taking indecent liberties with a 13-year-old girl. Eight years later, Mr. Packingham defied what he saw as a ridiculous social media ban by writing a Facebook post celebrating the dismissal of a traffic ticket. Authorities soon came across his post and prosecuted him. Mr. Packingham's lawyer, David Goldberg, told the justices the law was a stark abridgment of the freedom of speech that forbids speech on the very platforms on which Americans today are most likely to communicate, to organize for social change, and to petition their government. He said the flat-out ban on social media use, which might also encompass news sites with comment sections, forecloses some of the most important channels of communication in our society without targeting interaction with minors. While the law bans access, which would include scrolling through people's posts, it doesn't enable the state to find people unless a former offender chooses to make his online presence known. By contrast, people with ill intentions who are lurking on these sites are going to do their very best to hide their identity. John Roberts, Chief Justice, asked Mr. Goldberg how North Carolina might have crafted a more effectively tailored law Mr. Goldberg first mirrored, claiming it was the state's job to show it had seriously considered alternatives, but Justice Ruth Boehner Ginsburg fed him an answer. I thought you agreed with me earlier that North Carolina should ban communicating with a minor via social media. Right, Mr. Goldberg replied, but the chief was not satisfied. Because users often hide or lie about their ages online, he said a policy limited to minors might not be terribly effective. In his defense of the law... Robert Montgomery, the lawyer for North Carolina, emphasized the heinous nature of sex crimes and the statistical likelihood that sex offenders strike again, even as late as 20 years from when they are released from prison. The ban, he said, is enforceable and effective. But in the middle of his fourth sentence, Mr. Montgomery was interrupted by a tenacious Justice Elena Kagan. As the law makes all social media off-limit, she asked, is it correct that a person in this situation cannot go to the president's Twitter account to find out what the president is saying today? Mr. Montgomery nodded. It's not just Donald Trump who tweets, Miss Kagan continued. All 50 governors, all 100 senators, every member of the House has a Twitter account. So this has become a crucially important channel of political communication. 
and sex offenders would be barred from going onto those sites and finding out what members of our government are thinking of saying or doing. That's correct, Mr. Montgomery responded, but there are alternatives. A sex offender could always have a look at legislators' web pages. The toughest stretch for Mr. Montgomery was still to come. When Justice Stephen Breyer noted that law clerks could locate many cases in the space of half an hour, finding laws as broad as North Carolina has violated the First Amendment, Mr. Montgomery pointed to Burton v. Freeman, a 1991 case upholding a ban on political speech within 100 feet of polling places. Justice Anthony Kennedy immediately snuffed out that suggestion. The temporary regulation in Burson applied to everyone, not a single class of people, and was merely geographic. You could have all the political speech in the world outside that boundary. Burson, Mr. Kennedy said, does not help you. Citing it means you lose. Mr. Montgomery fought his apparently losing battle to the end, observing that sex offenders can go to news sites, pogs, bogs, podcasts, all those sorts of things, as well as turn to the likes of Facebook and Twitter. His argument got more time when Justice Samuel Alito picked it up in Mr. Goldberg's rebuttal. What if he mused, this case had reached the court in 2003 before the social media revolution? Now, I know there are people who think that life is not possible without Twitter and Facebook, and 2003 was the dark ages, the channels of communication that were available at that time, letters to the editor, radio shows, and cable news, for example, are still around in 2017. In response, Mr. Goldberg picked up several threads from the hearing. The ability to speak with this network group of people all over the world is well beyond the traditional town square. This kind of discourse, he said, is core protected speech. At least five of the eight sitting justices seem to agree. Erlen should have arrived before the end of June. So, yeah, judges seem to be waking up to technology at last. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I am really impressed because we used to talk about the Supreme Court and their quill and ink pots and their traditional parchment ways of communicating, but I think with the like the embrace that the president has of Twitter, they've had no choice but to wake up and take a look around. I I do like the way they're they, they're basically trolling the lawyer. <laughs> you know, he kept coming that's, up with his arguments and they kept shooting them down <laughs> it's like, that's what the, su the Supreme Court does that, they're very good at that they're, they're very good at that it, it's well yeah, judges are basically professional trolls, kind of Yeah. kind of in, in certain circumstances, like I said this guy's not a nice guy but, yeah. I don't know that goes way too far in some ways and if they can do that to that guy, yeah, you know what? What stops him from doing it to the next? It it really is a slippery slope, and it's ugly. I, I do get the impression Mr. Goldberg will not want to be going to that court again for quite a while. You think? Because, <laughs> damn, he got owned. <laughs> he did. He did. Yeah. Yeah, he, so the, he was probably he was probably thinking it was a slam dunk. Well, I represent the state; they're bound to support us. Yeah, yeah no, it's a sex offender. Not. He's a nasty individual. Well, yes, that but is. you're still screwing up people's rights. You are. I mean, and once you open the door, you just kind of it, it brings it around to the next time, and it's kind of like I've always said: everything that the law in this country does to someone who is poor and brown it's like it's a testing ground right yeah 
First they do it to the poor brown people and then they bring it to the relatively relatively wealthy or not a whole lot but you know uh, lower middle class people and then the upper middle class people and then the rich white people you know and then everybody's rights are violated it just I guess I mean, the way it, to it stop comes, this shit yeah. I mean it comes down it to moves. North Carolina wrote a stupidly worded unconceived law mm-hmm. which basically meant it did not take into consideration modern life uh, no. Now, um, I don't know what the rest of your states are like. Um, yeah. Obviously, I'm in the wrong country. Both, but over right? here, yeah, sex offenders are on Facebook. Yeah. But all it takes is for somebody to report activity of the type they've already been convicted of, that the police will go around and have a word with them, and Facebook will suspend their account. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't assume me. somebody's guilty before they do a crime. <laughs> that's, well, I mean, that's, that's insane. Yeah, that's pre-crime, and it's something yeah. that you know. If I they've mean, already done time, they've already done the penalty for the crime they've committed. Yes. And yeah, sex offenders—they keep. I quite agree with keeping a register of them because mm-hmm. the reoffending rate is so high. Right. But all you can do is watch for them reoffending. You can't stop them living a life. No, um, exactly. Yeah, the more serious cases, yeah, you could argue, yeah, <laughs> differently. But that's yeah. the really serious cases I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, but, I mean, once you take away, I mean, and we had this talk before about drunk drivers when Jeannie was here, and Jeannie was like, no, you know, they, they deserve... Um, they should have their their rights taken away, and I'm like, no, no, they shouldn't. You take away their rights, and it's easier to take away my rights and your rights. And no, they they deserve to have their rights respected. Well, I just mean, as much as your I do. Yeah, it's, I mean, stuff like stuff like drink driving. Um, this is where something like three counts you're out should yeah. be applied. If you're convicted three times of drunk driving, basically, you you're not allowed your to drive ever drive. again. Yeah. That I could agree with. But mm-hmm. anything up until that point, yeah, they should just be treated like everybody else. Because yeah. a lot of, um, I know personally, people who've been caught drunk driving, and mm-hmm. that's it. They've, they've just stopped drinking at all. If they know they're going to be driving. So you can't tar everyone with the same brush. No, I mean, and there are people that they bring out, you know, designated drivers. There are people that if they're going out, they call an Uber or a taxi to take them out. I mean, well, there a, are a lot of bars now, that. if you, you know, when, when regular patrons go in, they hand the barman their car keys. Yeah. I mean, that's the way to go. Come back but and pick up their car the next day. I mean, you know. That's that's showing common sense. You yes. know, and a lot of people will do that. Not everybody's capable of it. Some people are stupid. You can't pre crime does not work. I mean, it just it doesn't Well it, it no works, read... but not in the way that it's supposed to. Yeah. Minority report. I yeah. mean this is kind of it's weird. 
because so many of the topics here are so dystopian in yeah. in the fact that we can be talking about absolutely anything and it will relate in some way to some dystopian fiction or film or and it, it just kind of cracks me up none of this stuff is futuristic technology it's all here and now yeah and we've seen what they're doing with pre-crime they have predictive algorithms that police use to go and put somebody on a heat map because they say they're you know more likely to offend or to reoffend or or what have you and you know have the cops go to their house and if they're a minority well you know they're doubly screwed it it really is it's an ugly again yeah again um the big, it's a beautiful place. The related but it's a topic scary is scary place. Yeah, the, yeah, the related topics profiling. Um, yeah, which any intelligent policeman discounts. Mm-hmm. It's well, the it, it's the ones that really don't want to work for a living that think it's a great idea. Well, you know, but there are places and that, where that, that that brings us to things like TSA who do it, well, even right, though they're but, not supposed to. And right. <laughs> but I mean. Let's take it a logical step further. The airports in Israel. Yeah. They racially profile. Yeah. But then they, they also do search good... everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody goes through the same thing. People aren't randomly selected. No. So you're absolutely right there. So there's no air of um, improper treatment of someone based on how they look or their age or sex or anything. Because well, everybody's going to get the same violation. I personally know a story where okay. they could use it in ex- as an example for pre-crime profiling, okay. right? Okay. I okay. worked originally as a waiter in the hotel before I became head waiter. Okay. Um, and the head waiter, when I started work, was this gentleman who had a girlfriend who lived in Northern Ireland. Okay. And he, he, he joked that every time he went through the airport, he was always one of the ones that got frisked. And yeah, it's supposed to be random. But he's like, oh, every single time. Uh, Roll forward two years. Uh, What was this guy doing? Uh, Five years for armed robbery, as it happened. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, if, if, if you believed in... I mean, I don't know why he kept getting stopped at the airport. Right. Uh, he was just Barely. a mouthy Glaswegian. I don't know why that <laughs> stood out. Um, but, <laughs> going to Northern Ireland. But yeah, he then ended up being an armed robber. And the one plus one equals five brigade would go, yeah, I see, yeah, profiling, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I don't think it's it's... It's not always like that. No. I mean, I think it was his destination that led to him constantly getting stopped. No, no, no. Whole planes full of people go there. I mean, I've flown to Northern Ireland. Okay, it was yeah. much more recently, but yeah. The the only the only do a random selection, same as any other destination. Yeah, maybe he tried to look different every time. No, no, he always looked the same. I understand Silk shirt, slick back hair, smug oh. expression. Um, maybe, well, maybe that looks like a drug dealer. 
knows? <laughs> <laughs> he certainly did not look like your average terrorist who tries not to stand out. This guy was like know? six foot two. I say slick back hair, broad mm -hmm. Glaswegian accent, smug grin. If you get, if you, yeah, I mean, you're asked in some ways. You're asking to be picked out of a lineup, but yeah, in some ways that should be why you don't get picked out of a lineup. <laughs> Since I don't True. pick the guy who's really obviously like an idiot. Just a minute, huh? um, yeah, because yeah, yeah, he's just an ass. I mean, yeah. when I say he went down for armed robbery, they didn't use real weapons. It was a starting pistol <laughs> and a BB gun. Oh they, they 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 um went in a nightclub when it was just closing. Yeah. At the end of a weekend, because obviously well. it's got all the money from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh -huh. and they went in and him and another guy went in and robbed it. Jesus but they got caught, so yeah, yeah. Oh, so that nice. was our head chef and our second chef at the time. Yeah. Wow, what a our couple of robbers. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, the second chef. Yeah, he admitted he was a complete dumbass. Um, <laughs> he ended up working back at the hotel again later on as the second chef. <laughs> He's a brilliant guy. Right. Um, you'll be unsurprised to learn it was the other guy's idea. Yeah. So he talked him into it. Yeah. Great. So, this last one I think is interesting. Oklahoma federal judge, do you know which one I'm talking about? It's way up on the page. Okay. So, Oklahoma federal judge says environmentalism isn't a religion. Um, an Oklahoma federal judge on Monday told a proceed plaintiff that adhering to environmentalism doesn't count as a religion, tossing out his suit, alleging that a local library's alleged failure to recycle violated his rights under the First Amendment to freely exercise a religious practice. Randall Krauss sued the Tulsa City County Library Commission last year, saying the fake recycling bins he found throughout their downtown Tulsa location violated his rights to his practice his religion. He alleged that none of the contents put into the bins labeled recycling are actually recycled. Instead, they get sent to the dump his complaint sent. Krauss filed his argument under First Amendment violation, saying the library was interfering with his and other environmentalists' rights to practice their religion. The commission moved to toss the case, alleging that Krauss failed to state a claim. U.S. District Judge James H. Payne, James Payne, on Monday agreed, saying that Krauss didn't bring up enough proof that environmentalism is a religion. The allegations in the plaintiff's third amended complaint do not permit this court to make a determination that environmentalism is a religion entitled to protection under the free exercise clause, Krauss said. While the case appears to be a matter of a first impression for the Tenth Circuit, a California federal court had previously held that veganism was not a religious practice, Judge Payne said. Krauss's allegations concerning environmentalism, similar to the practice of veganism, revealed the plaintiff's practice of environmentalism is a purely secular lifestyle choice not protected by free exercise clause, Judge Payne wrote. Krauss first filed his suit in mid-October, initially alleging Leadem Act violations according to the court's history of the case. A second complaint alleged a First Amendment claim, which Krauss requested to amend and the operative complaint was filed in December. 
Cross alleged that people who believe in environmentalism will put their recyclables into the library's bins as an expression of their beliefs, but the contents do not get recycled. It prevents them from participating, the complaint said. In a motion to dismiss, the library said that Cross failed to state a legally sufficient claim for violation of his First Amendment rights to freely exercise a religious practice. Environmentalism is not a religion, and the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly held that secular beliefs and personal preferences do not warrant the protection of the free exercise clause, the library said. Furthermore, the library said, Krauss didn't show how the library recycling program is a course of use of the state power that unduly burdens his exercise, noting that the First Amendment doesn't require a government entity to conform to its conduct to a religious practice. In response to the motion to dismiss, Krauss said that environmentalism is widely recognized as a religion, given the multitude of writings from its adherents. Take recycling constitutes prima facie evidence in of an obstacle to the practice of a religion in violation of the First Amendment, he argued. But uh, Judge Kane said that Krauss hadn't supported a plausible claim that environmentalism is anything other than a secular. Um, um, even if a plaintiff can show that his sincerely held religious beliefs have been somehow impaired by a government program, such an impact does not rise to the level of coercion. If a plaintiff has an option of whether to participate in the program, Judge Payne said. Judge Payne also wrote that deficiencies in the complaint cannot be amended as the court has already given Krauss opportunities to do so. Representatives for the parties didn't immediately respond to requests for comments Tuesday. Kraus, no surprise, representing himself. The case is Kraus v. Tulsa City Library Commission in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Oklahoma. So, in no way should a hacker break in and change that to idiot versus Tulsa City Council. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. So. Yeah, it's a life choice, not a fucking religion. Oh, okay. dear, these people. And the best bit is, right, he could have brought a court case if he had evidence, of which isn't covered in this story. If the recycling boxes weren't actually being recycled, he could have probably had got yeah. the library done under some law that, you know, yeah. misrepresentation of... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But no, no, so, no, no. He he tried to claim it was a religious. They were breaking his religious rights. Like, what a, how stupid are people these days? I mean, it's unbelievable. Very, very so. stupid. So I'm gonna read a little bit from the Cornell University Law School about the First Amendment. Uh, the First Amendment of the United States Constitution protects the right of freedom of religion and freedom of expression from government interference. Freedom of expression consists of the rights to freedom of speech, press, assembly, and the petition to the government for redress of grievances and the implied rights of association and belief. The Supreme Court interprets the extent of protection afforded to those rights. The First Amendment has been interpreted by the court as applying to the entire federal government, even though it is only expressly applicable to Congress. Furthermore, the court has interpreted that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment as protecting rights in the First Amendment from interference by state governments. The two clauses in the First Amendment guarantee freedom of religion. The Establishment Clause prohibits the government from passing legislation to establish an official religion or preferring one religion over another. It enforces separation of church and state. 
restrictions on governmental activity related to religion has been declared constitutional by the Supreme Court. For example, providing bus transportation for parochial school and school students and the enforcing of blue laws is not prohibited. Free exercise clause prohibits the government in most instances from interfering with a person's basic practice of their religion. The most basic component of freedom of expression is the right of freedom of speech. The right of freedom of speech allows individuals to express themselves without interference or constraint by the government. The Supreme Court requires the government to provide substantial justification for the interference with the right of free speech or attempts to regulate the content of speech. A less stringent test is applied for content-neutral legislation. The Supreme Court has also recognized that the government may prohibit some speech that may cause a breach of the peace or cause violence. Despite popular misunderstandings, the right to freedom of speech, to freedom of the press, is guaranteed by the First Amendment, is not very different from the right to freedom of speech. It allows individuals to express themselves through publication and dissemination. It is part of the constitutional protection of freedom of expression. It does not afford members of the media any special rights or privileges not afforded to citizens in general. So now I think that's something most people didn't know. The right to assemble allows people to gather for peaceful and lawful purposes. Implicit within this right is the right to association and belief. The Supreme Court has especially recognized that right to freedom of association is a belief implicit in the first, fifth, and 14th amendments. This implicit right is limited to the right to associate for first amendment purposes. It does not include a right of social association. The government may prohibit people from knowingly associating in groups that engage and promote illegal activities. Right to associate also prohibits the government from requiring a group to register or disclose its members or from denying government benefits on the basis of an individual's current or past membership in a particular group. There are exceptions to this rule when the court finds the government interests in disclosure slash registration outweigh interference with the First Amendment rights. The government may also generally not compel individuals to express themselves, hold certain beliefs, or belong to particular associations or groups. The right to petition the government for redress of grievances guarantees people the right to ask the government to provide a relief for a wrong through the courts or other governmental action. It works with the right of assembly by allowing people to join together and seek change from the government. So I think that was pretty clear understanding of what the First Amendment covers right yeah okay so oh and, maybe... and just the, the 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 right to your religion right freedom mm -hmm. of religious expression right yes hugely misunderstood in your country mm -hmm. right because radical christians keep trying to use it to try and shut up every other religion you have mm -hmm. people in politics who will Oh well, we we always start our town meeting with a prayer. It's like, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. Government, religion, separate. Yeah. Uh, no. That crazy woman who was refusing to give out wedding licenses because yeah. it was against her to to yeah. alternative couples because it was against her religious freedom. It's like, sure. no, no, you're blocking their religious freedom, you dumb numb nuts. <laughs> exactly. What don't you get? <laughs> yeah, I mean... And it's like, it, you it's... work in a public office, you're not allowed to discriminate. Yep. End of. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you don't like that, don't have the job. 
Uh, and okay. you, you see a lot of this. Uh, I mean, a bit of it happens over here, but... Right. Not like yeah, it does here. You guys take it to a whole new level. Uh, <laughs> we always have. And this is but... why, this is why, in your country, that's why Westboro get away that's with what they do. Strange. It's because well, they're realize... expressing their religious right. But, 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 but you I mean, also you have know. the right, and people forget, this is the important one, as an individual, okay. you have a right not to listen. Mm. If you don't like it, leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I think people forget that the Westboro Baptist Church, they're all lawyers. Yeah. They want to incite you to rage so that you will attack them and they can make money from you. The, the um, LGBT that. trolling of them is hilarious, though. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Yeah, Showing up for the t-shirts and placards every time they come out. <laughs> it's yeah. brilliant. It is good stuff. Because, as you say, Westboro, no, they can't do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess that's it for this evening. It's just you and me in the room then. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, we guess, still, uh, we've still got seven minutes. Wow. Oh, we do. Yeah. I think you'd think people were actually bored by me talking about the First Amendment or something. Yeah. It's just Friday night. Everybody's out exercising their right to get shit-faced. Um, <laughs> well, you know, the Beastie Boys really did fight for that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, we've got that going for us as a country. Actually, I kind of... I miss the Beastie Boys. I mean, they were, they were great. They were fucking crazy, but yeah, they were good. They were very, they were very good at what they did. Um... You know, they're very talented. They just Volkswagen you know. owners weren't so keen on them. <laughs> well, you know, that happens. Not everybody's going to love you, apparently. Well, you know about the Volkswagen thing, don't you? No, but you're going to tell me. So ah, I'm just waiting. Right, one <laughs> of one of the Beastie Boys had mm -hmm. uh a necklace and it was basically the Volkswagen badge <laughs> so consequently idiot Beastie Boy fans were going out and pulling the insignia off people's cars <laughs> much to their annoyance funnily enough and yeah it breaks a law but yeah you know it is kind of funny that nobody went with the um... oh god what is his name he's a member of NWA he always wore the clock and the time was coming for the white man. Yeah. Um, he's so annoying. Um, what the hell is his name? I don't remember. But you know who I'm talking about. I'm yeah. surprised nobody... Well, I mean, I think more people probably would have gotten away with that shit than prying a VW logo off a car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. It was like a crime wave when the Beastie Boys got popular. That's Reports all up and down the UK certainly of all these Volkswagen owners. And and I came out in the morning and somebody had pulled the logo off my car. <laughs> so you just go around and look at who's wearing what, I guess, in your neighborhood, because people don't usually commit crimes too far from where they live. Yeah. And I'm not profiling. I'm just I'm I'm using a general statement 
that's true in all old police work. You know, there's there's like a 20 mile radius around your home that most crimes committed by criminals that live in that general area. Yeah, because so, like, that's a fun like most people, criminals are lazy bastards. Yeah, they are. Well, I mean, you know, that's just how it is. And it, that's basically a pattern you can pretty much take to the bank. You know, unless you're People, people have learned behaviors, yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't really, doesn't really change. I mean, you know, you work and live and play within the same twenty mile vicinity of your home, and if you're going to commit a crime, you'll do the same thing. You know, twenty mile mile vicinity of your home because it feels familiar to you. You don't think you're going to get caught. So. And, and you think you know the place. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting thought process. <laughs> That really is. But um, since that's it for this evening, I guess um, Muppets and Effort? Okie dokie. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. All right, guys. Good night. Thanks for listening. And the show will be up later on antimania.com. So you can listen at your leisure through the week because I know Friday nights are a bad night for a show. Um, Gary enjoys putting off his uh, television viewing for me because he loves me. Have a good night, you guys. See you next week.